sort of an overview, a walkthrough of a map that I've been making over the last couple days. Um, I, I made a new friend and someone here who's local in Philadelphia, which is awesome because like we always know, it's, it's nice to find people who have common interests. And uh, this is a person who actually is interested in plants, which is awesome. And also just sort of like larger ener energetic systems and life. And uh, yeah, it doesn't live too far away. So we, we uh, connected and had a cup of coffee and uh, we decided to meet in uh, University City, which is uh, near the University of Pennsylvania's campus and Drexel University's campus. And uh, we spent a couple of hours walking around the University uh, uh, City Science Center, which is uh, was sort of one of the first urban research parks uh, in the country. Uh, it had sort of intermittent success. It wasn't super successful. It kind of got off the ground in the 60s and the 70s as part of a bunch of like urban renewal, displacement programs, and you know, I think it's probably really coming into its own now as sort of this biotech center. So um, I, took, I took my lovely bowl that my friend Cohen had sent. It was another rainy day, so we all got a little damp. So I had that, and then also I was so excited because after we came back from um, Utah, I thought I had lost this um, bit of fabric, but this was gifted to me at a, a Sundance um, in South Dakota. Uh, and you know, the, the Lakota identify as the star people. And so I actually had torn off, this was a fat quarter of fabric, but this isn't a total half quarter because I had ripped off a couple of sections and I left them uh, when we were in Southeastern Utah, when Jason and I, Cliff and, Cliff and I, uh, did our swing through that area and actually uh, visited the outside um, of sort of like a nuclear waste disposal, like one of the largest places that they manage nuclear waste. Um, and it's it's near, I think it was Paiute land. And there was a big, you know, barbed wire fence or whatever. And, and I tore off some of that and I, I, I put tied a strip and left one of my little uh, uh, puppet dolls, mothers, uh, down by the fence there and set that intention. And then it disappeared. It totally disappeared for, uh, you know, almost a year. I couldn't find it anywhere, but it had been fallen at the bottom of my backpack um, and kind of gotten all mushed and it's also a dark color, so I didn't even notice it until this week. So I have that pack. And, um, and then today, so I, you know, I had my various accoutrements. I have my sweet grass and I have my creosote from Arizona and the little uh, replacement uh, bird's eye that Jason and Lynn found for me. And today in the mail, uh, my friend Eileen gifted me these amazing braids. Aren't they cool? They're just so beautiful. And like, I'm not 100% sure they're sweetgrass. I probably should be able just to tell by looking, but I can't, but they, they smell really good. They smell really nice. And, um, and it's interesting because one of the places that we paid a site visit to was the chemical Monell Chemical Senses Center, um, and and all of these sites were on Market Street between like thirty uh, fifth and thirty seventh and Market. So within two blocks, we we paid four visits. So this is the map that I've been making, and in the middle, 
uh, is the University City Science Center. And it was founded in 1963, but it took a while to get going. I think most of the buildings uh, that are in that area, and, and it's grown by leaps and bounds within the past five to eight years, um, like most of the core buildings, which are maybe 15 buildings, were from like the mid 80s, I would say, like maybe early to mid 80s. And they're giant buildings, like they sometimes take up a whole city block. They're not particularly tall. They're maybe eight stories tall. Um, they're very boring. <laughs> they're not very, essentially they're just big bunches of space. Um, and then there's been a lot, a lot of development uh, recently. And actually it, it's interesting because I'm gonna sort of walk through some of the history, but uh, it, it, this was actually envisioned as a post-World War II sort of Cold War era expansion of Penn, the University of Pennsylvania's campus. And it was done initially with Penn at the lead and then later with Drexel University and then there were a lot of other universities and medical centers that came on board and I think now it's like 30 different partners that are part of it. Um, but there was a lot of displacement and then um, more recently as a, as a result of trying to address some of that displacement, I think Penn uh, built University City High School, which is sort of a brutalist 1970s high school as sort of, a, I guess, a, to extend uh, uh, an olive branch to the local community um, that was pr predominantly low-income black community. And then, you know, they promptly, like the school district, let the, the building fall apart. And uh, as, you know, that, that the deconstruction of that building um, and the demolition of it and the closure of the school happened when I was doing, you know, when I was still involved in education work in Philadelphia and it was really sad. And so that area, as well as its parking lots in another elementary school, again, it was like taking over from the children's stuff, really, public, public property. Um, they demolished everything. They allowed uh, like a more elite magnet school to rent space in one of the buildings and then they redeveloped it. Um, they're in the process of redeveloping. It's not fully redeveloped yet, but in terms of a lot of medium-sized high-rise buildings, uh, a lot of this more, more recent development is mixed use. So it combines um, uh, research labs, um, residential, some sort of, you know, ground floor retail use. Um, but again, not particularly inspiring architecture per se. Um, and so to this place, so there were four sites in this two blocks that my friend and I, we had a nice cup of coffee and then we were like, okay, you know, take, take the basket. We took our basket down and um, we started to, you know, put out the good energy. And so we went to four places and I'll maybe just uh, sort of show you where we went first. So the first one is this uh, Institute for Scientific Information. And uh, that building was created by a man named Eugene Garfield, who's up here. And uh, Eugene Garfield was a linguist and he was a father, like a pioneer in information science. And he, essentially create like help build the, the 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 field of bibliometry so like like scientific uh, science citations i think you would call it uh indexing citation indexing but but not just indexing on like little pieces of paper like the old timey uh you know card catalog cards but doing it with automated cards doing it with um machine enabled uh, assembly of information and um yeah, so that was his specialty, was sort of linking the automation and the linguistics. And then a lot of it was sort of early language recognition and sorting and indexing. So so I wanted to go, because 
increasingly I'm sort of thinking that this emergent mechanical sentience that seems to be wanting to show up um, is really organized information. It's what it is. It's organized information. And so it's it's kind of strange to me to imagine that the like the librarians, are the, you know, people who are at the gates maybe are like the library, like the people who are managing like organizations of information and how it was organized and made the sense making and how that became automated are really like an important part of the story. So I was going to pay a visit to Eugene Garfield, uh, which we did, and then another. Uh, and these are all sort of random. This is just like a labyrinthy thing I did, right? They're not exactly all related other than they're part of this giant scheme, you know, of this giant emergence that I've been exploring. Uh, the other site that I visited, and I'm not sure I got it right because on their website, they just give a mailing address. Uh, and I did Google and I found out a, a street address, but then later it said that they were at another building nearby. So it could be one building or it could be the other. Our intention was to put it near the character lab um, and that is you know essentially a positive psychology um, like think tank uh, that's overseen by this woman Angela Duckworth who was a MacArthur genius fellow in positive psychology and behaviorism and uh, she's known as sort of the grit lady and so she's a professor at Penn and very much involved in sort of nudges and behavioral economics and good behavior and the, the econometrics the the, the valuing of good behavior um, and then for the years and years I when I was looking at character lab I thought oh you know it's like have good character right like have good posture have good character um, but I think it, it was actually now that I'm looking at it more and more that this was about um, avatars like this is about archetypes this is about inhabiting an archetype like there's a story that you will live inside and you will be this certain kind of character in your life that we've like shaped and molded for you to inhabit. Uh, increasingly moving forward is, is how they envision this. Um, so I went to the character lab and then uh, just down the, the next block down uh, is the Penn Positive Psychology Center. And that is a really important place where Martin Seligman, another Penn professor, uh, did his work. He was developing the field of positive psychology, which on the one hand, it sounds like you could kind of blow it off as low, like, you know, self-help books or things, you know, like not that big of a deal. But, you know, uh, Jason and Leo and Lynn and Cliff and Brandy and I are going to be doing this series around flow and this idea of smart uh, housing and social impact finance and the ways in which I, I really think that they're going to try to use the data analytics in uh, sensor-based, like multifamily housing and use the cost offset of our well-being, both our physical well-being and our mental well-being. And so all of this positive psychology starts to feel a little bit creepy when it's it's like enforced happiness. In fact, that was one of Martin Seligman's programs was something called Authentic Happiness. Um, and then Martin Seligman was actually, he, he was part of a program called the World Well-Being Project that was funded by the army and that was about uh, sentiment analysis. So scanning social media and developing automated systems to, um, uh, to assess the psychological state of people who are participating in these online platforms. Um, so that's really important. So we left something outside Martin Seligman's building. And then uh, the, the, the fourth one was this Monell Chemical Senses Center. Uh, which was founded in uh, the late 1960s. And 
essentially, you know, it's like the, it, the whole rise of the, you know, prepared food, processed food industry, not, not just this, uh, taste senses, but also fragrance too. And then you can imagine all of the, the fragrances associated with like cleaning products and things that we use, air fresheners, all of these things. Um, so that was a really big industry in the 60s and 70s. And this Monell Chemical Senses Center uh, was a leader in that. So we, um, so and it has a big golden half face out there with the nose and mouth, just a nose and mouth. And I guess they call those the minor senses. I guess maybe they're your visual and hearing, and I guess touch, I don't know, are the major senses. And then, but the chemical ones, and, and those are ones that they're actually trying to digitize right now. So I'm just gonna click through and show you, well, actually I'm gonna start with the, so that's the overview of the places we went. I'm gonna uh, open up now and take a look at uh, the, uh, the, yeah, so this is, this is where we're at. Uh, this is Market Street uh, in uh, Philadelphia on the uh, west side of the Schuylkill River. And uh, the University City Science Center is about three or four blocks. A again, at this point, it's probably a couple dozen very large buildings. They're all clustered together. Um, to the south is the University of Pennsylvania and to the east is Drexel University. And then there's a number of health systems. There's Penn Medicine, there's this Penn Presbyterian Hospital, um, and there's quite a lot of other regional partners that are connected to that. But that's sort of situating where, where, uh, where the center is. And then this is just the Wikipedia. Um, it, it mentions that it was initially planned in 1963, and within that, they actually demolished a large part of a, a black neighborhood called Black Bottom. And it set up a lot of you know tension that has continued today. There's still a lot of tension in West Philadelphia about the role that the University of Pennsylvania and its development uh, and being a good neighbor or not being a good neighbor. Um, but it says that there was a 2016 study that said they, they incubate, it's an incubator for, for private businesses in the tech sector, particularly biotech, because a lot of it's biomedical and life science related, um, that they uh, contribute $13 billion to the uh, regional economy annually. And again, like you can sort of see why like health isn't actually profitable. Managed chronic illness is profitable. Actually creating environment, like conditions that are actually like good for people haven't been, but once they get their sensor networks and we have to live in the outside and robot, then maybe at that point, the way in which they describe health in terms of metrics will be become profitable. Um, so I guess it says it's a, so, so it's now been rebranded as U City Square. So something less boring than University City Science Center, U City Square. And it says that it is, um, uh, let's see, 17 buildings now on 27 acres. And then there's still some open space. Um, so uh, in addition to the other hospitals I've mentioned, uh, there's Children's Hospital of uh, Philadelphia, which is a very significant hospital. And then the Worcester Institute, uh, which is actually uh, on the campus of the University of Pennsylvania, but it is a private institute. And it's like the oldest biomedical institute in the country, I think. And it dates to the 1890s. Um, and they were involved in a lot of like vaccine development and, and various things. So. Um, Yes, and it was done in partnership with the Philadelphia Redevelopment Authority. So I remember, um, you know, having some issues with my city council people when I was doing the education work, and you know, just you know, increasingly it feels like the future is that like the youth are going to be trained to either run the smart grid, 
code the metaverse or come up with the technologies that are going to give us superpowers to make us like part of this collectivist uh, consciousness thing um, and under the name of precision medicine and health. And they're, they're, everything is driving children in that direction. And, and I'm so resistant to it because like clearly like, I'm not a science and technology person as much as I try to understand all of this. It's not, it's not my jam. Um, but in this campus, there were several uh, schools that were eliminated and then repurposed, but all with the idea that they would have partnerships with this uh, science institution and that they would groom up even starting in middle school, the kids to do these this biotech work. And so these are all of the partners. You can see, um, you know, in addition, the American College, I'm not sure what that is, Bryn Mawr, Burlington County, that's in New Jersey, Delaware State, East Stroudsburg, which is like two hours away, uh, Haverford, Lafayette, Lehigh, Lincoln, Mercy Health System, the National University of Singapore, that's kind of interesting. Hmm, okay. Uh, Penn-Jerdell Council, Pennsylvania Hospital, Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine, Philadelphia University, Presbyterian Foundation for Philadelphia. Now that's actually significant because later on we're gonna talk some about John Templeton and John Templeton of the Templeton Foundation was Presbyterian. Uh, the merger of science and religion. Uh, Rowan University, Rutgers, Salis University, I'm not familiar with that, Swarthmore, uh, Temple, uh, Temple Schools of Podiatric Medicine, Thomas Jefferson University, uh, that's a medical school, University of the Arts, interesting, uh, University of the Sciences, University of Delaware, University of Pennsylvania, Villanova, and Widener. So anyway, many, many people who are involved in uh, this science center. And you know, oh, I forgot to continue my, finish my thought on that, but the city council people, including our city council president, Daryl Clark, um, at the time, uh, he was my city council person. And we were trying to sort of push back against like these sort of really uh, graduation exit exams that in order to get a diploma, you had to pass this, but it wasn't a good exam and it was very arbitrary. And, you know, I was trying to talk to him about this, but like within the conversation, he, he was saying, well, this city is about eds and meds. So eds and then meds. And so at the time I, I thought he meant sort of, oh, we're, we're, the future economy is about education, like in the education workforce and in the medical workforce. But what I, I'm realizing in retrospect that is actually like our bodies are the receptacles for processing education and processing medical interventions. And then the data that we will emit off of our engagement with these online platforms, both for education and medical technologies, will be our the value that we contribute to the collective, you know, per se. And so, but the the biomedical the life sciences the biomedical engineering the pharmaceuticals is like a really really important economic driver in Philadelphia so it's really hard to like I can see now again within the lockdowns why it was so tight because it's like having your the, the, the one of the main drivers of your economy like like have you you know they're <laughs> in the palm of their hand so to speak Okay, so uh, so this image, uh, this was an interesting series, actually. I think it was a, 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 a museum exhibit uh, in 1999. So it's quite old at this point, uh, over 20 years old. But it was sort of giving the backstory, which I really appreciated because, you know, when I talk about like walking around the labyrinth, we just don't, I, like, 
in large respect, and you know, I've lived in Philadelphia since the mid nineties. So, you know, almost 30 years, but there's, there's places you see with regularity, you know, if not weekly, you know, many times, and you just, you don't know, actually know what the story is behind it. It's just like a building, right? It's just like a couple of blocks of 1980s boring office space. And you don't really know the stories, but when you start to dig into the stories, you have reason to, um, they're quite fascinating. So um, in this, this section, uh, it's talking about uh, like the public relations issues. You know, they tried to start it in 1963. It took a while to get the land. Uh, they knocked down a bunch of neighborhoods in a low-income black community uh, that Penn was kind of the lead on that. And that was done through uh, the Federal Housing Authority. And then eventually they started building, you know, buildings in in the the later 1960s. Um, but I guess they were operating maybe somewhere else in the city. Uh, and and while they were doing all of this negotiating to get the land and get their first building up, that they wanted to have like a tower. Um, it says that within weeks, the University City Science Center, whose membership had by now increased to 11 institutions, received its first research contract for a two-year, $150,000 study of viruses, underwritten by Johnson and Johnson and Company. So you know that's an interesting start for things, right? Like when we look at it out the other end of history, that the first. Uh, a research project, funded research project that they were associated with was the study of viruses. And Johnson & Johnson is actually also a major, uh, uh, an important tenant in the Pennovation campus, the former um, DuPont campus, uh, where they do a, the GRASP lab, the swarm robotics. So, and, you know, I just, I want to point out before we go a little bit further and I'll, I, I can include this link. Actually, I'll include the link to the map and then you can have access to all this stuff because everything includes links. Um, in 2018, I, I, my early blog, it was a solely an education blog uh, for the first, you know, it, I didn't really have occasion to want to deal with healthcare beyond maybe looking into what was happening with the community schools and the school-based health clinics. The, the, I mean, it took me so long just to get the education stuff nailed down that I just didn't have time. Like healthcare was just so much bigger. Um, but I did do one article in 2018, in the summer of 2018, and it was it was two parts, and the it was talking about nudges and using digital technology to nudge us. And again, I had none of the backstory about like that the impact finance data was meant to train machine learning and how the digital twins worked. That was that was still years out for me to actually have. Um, but this I, in this two part series, the second one was called um, Minding Our Health: The Nudge Part Two. And, and central in this is an institution connected to Penn called the Center for Health Incentives and Behavioral Economics. And it goes by CHIBE, C-H-I-B-E, the Center for Health Incentives and Behavioral Economics. And um, it says they investigate the science of behavioral economics and how it can improve health outcomes. And you know, it's, it's interesting, you can have something and then really only five years later understand what it actually was. Because as I've been doing this research into flow and the multifamily housing and this idea of like social enterprise businesses and that like maybe you could incorporate a real estate development as a DAO and start tokenizing behaviors that are happening in the built environment in areas that are ge like geolocated, like within the DAO. And that literally like as you interface with the built environment, it's like you're engaging with 
Like it's not sentient, but like it's like an entity. It's like a pervasive entity. And so like within the surveillance, uh, like within the can you open the doors? Because most of these places you actually can't like open the doors and it's all, uh, you know, you all swipe cards or whatever to get in. Everything is locked down. And so it, everything is conditional, right? That's going to be your layer of smart logic, you know, at the base layer. It's like, can you get in the door? Yes or no? Um, so the Center for, for Health Economics and Behavioral Economics, this is really what Angela Duckworth is about and her partner, uh, uh, Katie Milkman. I think that's an interesting last name, Katie Milkman. Um, so I would encourage if you haven't read this again, it's five years old at this point, but it is going to link in the, the smart city contracts to health behaviors. And this is, this is why I understood that the wellness section, like the, you know, the, 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 catastrophe of the, the lockdowns around one particular health event was really to set up the marathon. Like that was the shock and awe for several years, but the marathon is gonna be around managed wellness. And, and I, I, yeah, I know I've said this before, but I really wanna reiterate this. If you identify as someone who is centered in an alternative health space or the health freedom space, if you're not wrapping your minds around the fact that they want to decide what wellness means for you for preventative care, and they're going to track you against it. And then that's going to be part of the impact metrics. So, and this is all coming out of Penn because the Center for Health Economics is also connected to Wharton. So it's like a blending of the business model um, with the engineering school and the sensor networks and with the medical schools. And um, I, I just have a, lot, I have a lot of concerns about that. Okay, so I, I went to the, the website and they had their impact report. And this is from 2021, so it's a little bit outdated at this point. And it looks like sort of a vortex if you, for people who might be listening in, it's a black page with like a red half circle in it and it's sort of like you're falling into some pit. <laughs> so that's, that, that's their impact, like a spiraling pit with the red at the bottom. Um, so I, I sort of just spent some time glancing through what their impact report said and I pulled up a few things that jumped out at me uh, one was, uh, this says that Philadelphia is a top 30 global startup ecosystem. Well, I'll just read, read a couple things from this report. As the Science Center positions itself as the world's partner for accelerating technology innovation that addresses society's biggest healthcare challenges, news broke of Philadelphia jumping 15 spots in the ranking to enter the coveted top 30 startup ecosystems, ranking eighth globally for life science ecosystems. So yeah, those are our bodies. Like whatever the growth that the growth of that economic model is predicated on the fact that we need intervention in our bodies, ongoing, per per perpetually. Um, you know, and it's it's challenging because like I saw the names of a couple of uh, biotech gene therapy cell therapy companies. You know, and I looked them up, and you know, on the surface they they look. You know, it's like people with congenital genetic illness like and children with like very difficult like you know very complex involved situations right and you have empathy for that like you like you nobody wants people to not have a cure the thing is like how long have they been working on these things and I'm just like not finding out like that many amazing cures like these these terrible chronic illnesses or genetic illnesses that have cures like I, it's just like it seems like they don't, and then I'm, and then more and more, it seems like a lot of this stuff is dual dual use. So anyway, I didn't realize that Philadelphia was the eighth globally ranked life science ecosystems. That's kind of a big deal. Um, 
and it says the Science Center, in partnership with Ben Franklin Technology Partners and Drexel, worked with Startup Genome to highlight the strengths on the global stage. So, yeah, so getting getting everything started. Uh, then it mentioned uh, the 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 focus on working with Israel. So this is a quote from their impact report. With an ambition to serve as the world's partner for accelerating technolo technology innovation that addresses society's biggest healthcare challenges, the Science Center set its sight on the robust technology ecosystem and cutting edge healthcare innovations in Israel. And it goes on to say, through partnerships with leading Israeli organizations of healthcare systems, technology hubs, and government entities, the Science Center is cultivating top Israeli health technology startups for commercialization in the US market using our proven milestone-driven approach. And so I'll just say, like, if people are not familiar, and I actually wasn't, I, I have a graduate degree from Penn and I didn't know it at the time, but Penn is sort of considered the Jewish Ivy. Um, and so they, there are a lot of close relationships of families and alumni um, and the school, like between the university and institutions in Israel. And, you know, honestly, Penn and has a really robust, like, separate policing district uh, with a lot of high-level technology. And and one of them, like I went to a public meeting once that was when our city was hosting the International Police Chiefs Association. Um, and, you know, I was asking some kind of pointed questions. Um, and then at the, at the end, there was somebody in the audience who raised their hand and they said, it was an older man, and he said, so the future of policing is predictive analytics, facial recognition, and drone surveillance. And I come to find out that like he's the, the CIO of the city, I guess chief innovation officer. Now he wasn't like six months later, he, they kicked him out. But you know he was giving everybody a heads up of what actually was happening. And he actually was there with the head of Penn Policing. And so, and this head of Penn Policing was saying, oh, well, you know, and this was five or six years ago. Oh yeah, we hardly have any people anymore. We really just do our foot patrol, like foot patrols by camera. We just scan everything all the time. And, and, and so it's, you know, this is a five or six years ago, this. So, you know, and that's just general relationships. But again, the Weizmann Institute, like there's so much. So anyway, it's interesting that they, they bring this to the fore, that this relationship. Um, then it's talking about the, the BARDA mask challenge. So BARDA, I'm gonna have to look it up again, but I think it's like Biomedical Advanced Research Development Agency. So it's like DARPA, but for biomedical biotech stuff and pandemic preparedness. So they were, uh, we were a center, we're, we're one of their accelerator partners. We're an accelerator network partner and a lot of entities in this space participated in a mask challenge. So you can, you can imagine if the government is like funding mask challenges, like nobody's gonna like dial back on the masking, right? Like people are just gonna be like, more masks, like the government, look at this, there's a whole business model about masks, right? They're like, oh, you know, while, while many people associate face masks with COVID-19, the need for masks didn't begin in 2020 and it won't be eliminated when the pandemic fades. So they've built a pipeline to like keep us in masks and it's the government in partnership with private industry to do that. And this University City Science Center was part of it. Um, now this 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 is kind of, this is something, guys. Um, so uh, okay, uh, you know I mentioned that a whole big focus of the University City Science Center is around training young people, and especially framing it that they're we're we're 
uplifting disadvantaged youth, right? And bringing them in, especially STEM, STEM and STEAM, science, technology, engineering, and math, and then STEAM, you throw the A for arts in the middle, and particularly girls. So in this photo, you have three young black women, like looks like high school, they're holding a <laughs> they're holding milk <laughs> um, and they look like they're in a lab. So so this section is talking about some of the efforts that they're doing with something called First Hand and it's with the Paul Robeson High School. And it was a partnership that the University City Science District had with these youth and that they were, they spent six months paired with scientists to develop these projects in biodesign, this biodesign challenge. And the goal was to de design a biotech product that could transform fields ranging from medicine to architecture to fashion and food, okay? And, and of course, the weird thing is, is like it says, you know, as soon as they got started, then they went into lockdown. But, but it, don't worry, like it was great because we could have virtual programming and, and um, our curriculum mentor was actually in Berlin. And so like, it was already set up that all of this stuff is gonna be remote anyway. Like if you were gonna have a meaningful, like face-to-face -face relationship, you would never have set up these young people, high school kids with a mentor that was in Berlin. Like you would have had somebody local, cause what, we're the eighth largest, um, you know, center for startups. You would have found somebody nearby, but they, they you know, this was all, all baked into the pro project that these people were, oh, it was all these consults are gonna be remote. So this is, this, is the, this is the piece that really stood out to me. Now, these are speculative projects. The kids didn't actually build or design the product. It was a concept, okay? But even the nature of the concept. So the first one, like, you know, I can see, it says the resulting speculative designs were clean water of our future, a sustainable water purifying solution that empowers villagers in underdeveloped parts of the world by farming cyanobacteria. Now, I actually am a kind of a fan of science, but like, I'm still like this, this future is a lot of bioreactor stuff. Then the second project is called ProHuman, which is a line of probiotic food mixes that promote positive, calming feelings and attitudes, which lead to a more racially tolerant and accepting society. And then that one, that team had the distinction of being invited to quote, present to a panel of judges at the 2021 Biodesign Challenge. So literally we're talking about drugging people to have them behave the way that we want them to behave. Now, surely we would love to have like a calm and happy future, you know, that like nobody wants to have a bad future, but everything that's lining up makes it seem like the future that's coming is gonna be intense and um, not always rosy. And so, you're gonna drug people with their food, like a food additive. And then that kind of goes back to the Monell chemical census. But that you would, and even though they didn't build it, the idea that you're normalizing for young people, that that's how you are in the world, right? Like we're not gonna actually fix the conditions that lead people <clears throat> to, to a, you know, hold negative views or, create dis, like dis, disadvantaged populations or fix the problems, we're just going to actually drug you so you think everything is fine. And we're not gonna call it a drug, we're just gonna call it like a food supplement or something like that, a probiotic. And this is the thing I'm saying, like I'm really, as much as I really like my like Greek yogurt, I'm kind of a little bit worried about where things are all going with the commercial yo yogurt products. Okay, so pro-human. 
and okay so the next one uh so they have like you know again with the whole startup culture a venture cafe um and they in in 2021 they had a special program around remote patient access that oh everybody's decided there's a need for remote patient access to healthcare and so they were partnered with places like Siemens Healthineers uh, Prosia Chop which is Children's Hospital and the Economy League to solve health inequity funding and again that's because they want you in telemedicine and they want your data they want your biology um, and then the, the, the youth program, the school program that was funded by almost a $4 million grant from the, the U.S. Department of Education. Uh, and it was, it was to work with these schools in West Philadelphia, uh, middle school students, so uh, sixth to eighth grade. Again, uh, let me see, what, what is, it says they, they, um, they will, there will be an evaluation on the grant, a formative evaluation to collect baseline data and refine program delivery, and a summative evaluation to de demonstrate the effectiveness of the curricula on student STEM identities, competencies, and skills. That they will have a, like whatever, well, I mean, I guess arts, eventually you, you throw it and you make it STEAM and then that's inclusive. But like if, if, if it's everything, then why even bother saying STEM or STEAM, just say we're, we're offering kids education, but this is very much about the technology base. Okay, so so that's the core, that's the, the, that's the science district. Um, this is just, I was looking up BARDA, yeah, Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, okay, is BARDA, and it was started in 2006 uh, to work on pandemic influenza and infectious diseases um, and radiological and nuclear threats, right, because we're always under threat. Um, and yeah, the, the, the BioShield Act of 2004 aimed to augment market incentives for companies pursuing the development of biological, radiological, and nuclear threat threats and the Pandemic All Hazards Preparedness Act established BARDA. Yeah, so 2004, 2006, BARDA, and then this is just an image just showing their accelerator network. Uh, so this one SC is the University City Science Center. <coughs> it looks like they have one in the Research Triangle, uh, in Atlanta, in New Orleans, maybe in Houston. It's in Texas. I think that's Houston. It's on the coast. Um, I'm assuming San Diego and San Francisco and California and Seattle and Washington. And um, would that be Minneapolis? <laughs> maybe it's Milwaukee. Milwaukee was that's Minnesota yeah uh Purdue uh Kansas City I think no not oh University of Missouri bioaccelerator and Boston and looks like one on Long Island the Center for Biotechnology so yeah so there's there's about a dozen of those and uh yeah so we're all they're all working and again market incentives for all of this stuff uh just here's sort of an, an image. What is U City Square? Everything always has to have these bland uh, promo names, but they want to mix this idea of like, you're going to live here, you're going to work here, you're going to do everything here. And that's again, like goes along with the whole, you know, walkable stuff. And I, I'm not against walking, like I'm really not against walking, but just like this, that, that this is part of what's coming with like, we're going to measure your well-being because we're going to package it all together and then track it. So it's like you're always under surveillance. Um, it says that the U City Square is 8 million square feet of mixed use communities uh, with lab, clinical office, retail and residential. 
So it's quite a big project. I mean, I, I think anybody who's in a populous city right now during lockdowns, like they didn't slow down on the construction at all. Like they're planning for lots of people to live and work in these places. But, you know, they're not super inspiring buildings, none of them. They don't look particularly high quality, I have to say. Um, and, okay, so... So later on, I'm going to say a little bit about an organization called MetaNexus that actually relocated to New York City in 2011, but it started in the University City Science Center and it was funded by the Templeton Foundation. Um, and they were essentially looking at the wedding of like big data, big history, synthesizing all the information, which is kind of what Garfield was about like mapping and synthesizing and sense making of all the data and information. And so they had a number, a series of conferences and the one uh, in 2001, which was early for them, it was called Genetics, Bioethics and Evolution. And I'm just gonna read this to you because I think, um, yeah, I'm just gonna read it. Okay, so this is a description of their, the, the, um, the Meta Nexus's uh, 2001 conference, and again, funded by the Templeton Foundation. Templeton is like free markets, character development, genius, religion, and theoretical physics. So this is all the stuff like I'm talking about Eric Weinstein and all of that. Uh, so this is a quote, uh, the sciences and technologies of genetics are revolutionizing our understanding of nature, including our own human nature. We are literally and figuratively reinventing nature and ourselves as science and culture embark upon a new Lamarckian phase in evolution. The genetic engineering of our agriculture, other species, and ourselves raises profound scientific, medical, ethical, legal, psychological, pastoral, religious, and metaphysical questions. In light of this genetic revolution, we will wonder about this intensification of human creativity and power in conversation with different religious traditions. And then it says there's no website for that conference. I would be interested in what they came up with. But so, you know, this is, this is over 20 years ago that they, they're dealing with this and in, in, in pen medicine actually in pen affiliated research were really front and center in cell therapies and gene therapies and so for people who aren't familiar with lamarck uh i'm just so this is okay so this this is a map that i made a while ago um and uh, it was it's sort of linking my eugenic stuff um, with Talar Desjardins and the noosphere, and so I it, it's a bit it's a bit packed, but essentially within like the evolutionary construct, there was a difference between Lamarck and Darwin, or like neo Lamarckian and Darwinism. The focus, as I understand it, is that like within Darwinism is that traditional Darwinian evolution did not take into account, everything was slow and gradual. All of the adaptations were slow and gradual. Whereas under like the Neo-Lamarckian idea was that at certain times, conditions could come together that there could be significant evolutionary jumps all at once. And I think that's, that's the stuff that Oliver Reiser talks about is sort of like getting to a point that there's like a bigger evolutionary trajectory. And this idea of epigenetics that like you could, uh, that traits acquired after birth, like as, a, as a, a biological being could actually be transferred to offspring. That there are things that you could do in your life that would change your biology in ways that would then be paid forward. And if you imagine that really 
a lot of the people working in the evolutionary space were all about optimization, right? Social progressivism, making things better, getting you your superpowers, getting us improved, getting us towards a collective consciousness, like ascension. Um, there's this trajectory. And so of course, you, there's this idea that you would want to do self-improvement on your body and mind even after you were born because it that's what Lamarck is about. That's not what traditional Darwinian evolution is about. And if you could do that, then you could like accelerate like the evolutionary process to, to some reach some sort of transcendent state, which I think is what they imagine that they're going to go after. And so the transcendent state I have over here on the map, uh, Talar Desjardins, the Jesuit anthropologist and geologist who developed this idea of Christogenesis, that we would merge out of our bodies towards a thought, global thought form in the noosphere. And that was called the, the Omega Point. And, you know, he, he was working sort of in this transhumanist space and later in life, friends with Julian Huxley. Uh, and of course, Huxley uh, was the, the grandson of Thomas Henry Huxley, who was called Darwin's bulldog. And he was, uh, I guess, half brothers with Andrew Huxley, who was a Nobel Prize winner in electrophysiology and uh, brothers to Aldous Huxley, who wrote uh, Brave New World. And, and, and then so... So the Lamarckianism really goes into the eugenic space, right? This, this optimization and this idea that we could have make a lot of progress, right? Because that's what Julian Huxley was like, the most progress the fa as fast as we can. And, and I think that the Lamarckian ethos is really what Perry Marshall, who is this business consultant who has this $10 million prize to discover the origin of life, um, like is in a, in a Lamarckian tradition. So, okay, so then I'm gonna just show, this is another image that I've used, I've featured before, but this is a map that I had made on Little Sis a while ago. Um, it was called The Selfish Ledger, and I've, I've showed that slide, that clip from, I think it's 2016, and it was supposedly leaked from Google, but it was, it's about an eight minute video, and it really sort of lays out this idea that we are simply, our biology is, is a repository of data. Um, and in fact, I think in the video they call it like we are custodians of data. We are transient caretakers of data. And that is our, our genetics and epigenetics that is passed on. And so the selfish ledger is really a distributed ledger system, is a digital identity, is a blockchain, is an integrated data set. Um, in, in the, I kind of mapped out in this map all of the things that I, I heard them saying, but without actually coming right out and saying it. But you know, talking about genomic sequencing, synthetic biology, passing uh, these genetic traits acquired after birth onto future generations, using social physics, uh, predictive analytics within the context of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, using it on blockchain or some sort of other distributed ledger technology to keep track of everything. Because you can imagine with all the nanobots they imagine or whatever gene editing, like you need a solid record to remember like, oh, what did we do to you last week, right? Like, oh, what did we do to you last night? Like think of all that your phone updates, like these things that just automatically go, like you need to keep track of like the sequence of what happened. And that if there was some data that, that the machine wanted to get to sort of mold you better that it didn't have, it would create a, um, a bespoke solution. It would, it would look at all of your buying history and figure out something that you would buy and then 3D print it and then figure out what price you would pay for it and then send it, like get it in your hands or on your body so that you, they could get that little tiny, fill out that little bit of data about you. 
And then within that, I, I put that against the backdrop of Google Alphabet, Google X, and you know, Wayne Mo, Sidewalk Lab, Smart City, City Block, which is health, uh, Verily, the, the, the COVID testing regimes, Google Health, Nest, uh, home, Smart Homes, Google Brain, like all of this is sort of underlying this idea that we are transient caretakers of data, like self-improvement data, like, and to be moved on and like used, not just for our own individual purposes, but in, um, for this larger collective good. So, um, you know, it's interesting to me to hear him talking about it as Lamarckian, because that is really what we're doing with biotech now is that it, it is a, like, it is going to be a Lamarckian program, right? I mean, if they start doing gene editing on people, like that's, that's what's going to be coming. So I have a few pictures that I took, uh, outside of the, the building where I think the character lab is, uh, 3675 market street, uh, this is just talking about like connecting innovators to make things happen, you know, and, and uh, the, the venture cafe for the biotech companies. Uh, and then this is sort of, uh, this is street level window decoration. It says, you know, it's sort of like saying, oh, this is, this is who's here in this kind of boring building. Um, experts, entrepreneurs, makers, thinkers, innovators, risk takers, game changers, leaders, and doers. Um, so, promoting all of these things happening like if you if you're in this space like you're someone who's out on the edge right but you're not really because this has already been predetermined that that's where the future is going so uh amicus is one of one of the companies that was on this uh billboard the street level billboard uh, amicus therapeutics global research and gene therapy uh, and i believe there were a number of like orphan kind of genetic illnesses that they were working on. And it was kind of a sad story because I guess the founder company had two children that had this genetic disease. Um, but again, like as a business model, I, I just, like if we're eighth in the, the, the world in bioscience development, like does that mean that like in the future, like again, moving after these past few years, it's really hard to imagine like, oh, healthy people can be compelled to use biomedical products because that's how we've set up our society now, even if we're like, and there's an economic imperative to do so. There's an economic imperative to like top you off with like whatever the newest cocktail is. But the ones that are on the ground are for very reasonable things. Like, you, you know, you, of course you would want if there was a way of helping people who had such severe illnesses to, to get better, right? Like that. But it's like, it's very hard to figure out where to position yourself to have this conversation about like, do we want to live in a world run by synthetic biology and biotechnology? Like most people in the world don't have these illnesses. So why are we agreeing to it other than it's eugenics with superpowers? Spirovant is another one. I think they were working on, uh, oh, I can't remember the name of the illness. It's like where your lungs get all congested, like, and it stop working. Anyway, yeah, so it's a lung respiratory. Uh, leading the revolutionary in treating genetic respiratory disease. And, um, you know, they have, of course, their innovation labs. And um, this is the next building down. This is where Martin Seligman is. It's, uh, the, the sign has Penn Medicine. Uh, Drexel University's College of Engineering in the data center because of course you have to store everything somewhere until they can figure out how to store it in our bodies. So that's that's that. 
Um, so yeah, thinking about Lamarckianism in terms of synthetic biology and biotech, I think that's, and they knew it 20 years ago. Most regular people are not thinking about this. Um, so, okay, so here's the Monell Chemical Census Center. Uh, it's on the other side of the street. It focuses on discovery, advancing discovery in taste and smell. <laughs> it, it shares office space with the Drexel Conquer Collaborative, the School of Biomedical Engineering, Science and Health. And this is just a, a, a bit of a, an overview of the history of this. Uh, dates to the 1960s. Now, like, I'm a kid of the 1970s. And, you know, we were sort of raised in, um, you know, processed food, a processed food era. <laughs> you know, better living through chemistry. Um, lots of processed food. Um, and I never really stopped to think. I mean, we, we try to eat pretty much just like as little processed as possible in our house these days. Um, but yeah, so this is supposed to be sort of like this go-go era where things are really great for people, but like we're, we're introducing all sorts of chemicals into foods. Now the Monell Center, uh, it was, it was backed by a company called International Flavors and Fragrances. So it was also perfumes, but I think beyond perfumes that you wear, there's also fragrance that would be in all sorts of other commodities. Um, and let's see, so this guy, Morley Care was a K-A-R-E, Care, Care, um, taught veterinary school at Cornell, and he was looking at food choice. And it says, with, with encouragement from government agencies like the NSF and the Veterans Affairs, and a few foresighted individuals, including Henry Walter, the chairman of International Flavors and Fragrances, he set out to establish a research group uh, that would use, like, be composed of chemists, biochemists, physiologists, and psychologists, all working in the same place on taste and smell. And so uh, the Ambrose Monell Foundation made a pledge of a million dollars in 1967, and they got it all set up. And so, yeah, so then it was off to the races. And uh, we went in, we looked, we peered. Of course, everything is behind a key card, so we couldn't really get in. But in the lobby, uh, big photos, panels of the chemical aspects of taste and smell, including chemical irritation and the molecular structure of that. Because they're really, they're looking to digitize it. So that's what's going to be coming next. They're looking to digitize it. Um, corporate partners for Monel include Danone or Dana, uh, which is the yogurt people and, and Google. So Google's, you know, over in my backyard, Procter Gamble, Unilever, and also interesting, uh, Young Living, because I've been thinking for a while, like when I went, uh, you know, when I visited uh, Utah, like a couple of the major industries there are about essential oils. Young Living and, um, I don't know, the other one is slipping my mind right now, but there's two big ones um, and very, very prominent. And I've just like, there's, there's something about it that I'm just not sure of. And I was like, you know, I keep thinking, is it nanotechnology? Is it like emotion engineering? Because there is something about that in, in emotion. Um, but it was interesting to me to see that, that young living, uh, which was part of this as well. So yeah, so that's that now outside of the building is a big nose and mouth. And that's probably the most prominent thing that you see on this sort of set of blocks. It's uh, by a, a sculptor, her name is uh, uh, Arlene Love. And this is, the, it's called Face Fragment. Uh, 
face fragment by Arlene Love dedicated to the scientists and staff of the Monell Chemical Senses Center, presented by Patricia Van Ameringen Kind. So Patricia Kind, she has a, a foundation. Her father was with the international, here's his obituary, uh, Arnold uh, Lewis Van Ameringen the founder and later chairman of a billion dollar company, International Flavors and Frequences in Man based in Manhattan. Um, and so she was uh, his child and some of that fortune went over to a family foundation. And, uh, you know, I'll mention that. So here's here's the family foundation and actually it's, it's very much involved in impact finance. So uh, there's a, this is an article from Social Innovations uh, Laura Kind McKenna and the Patricia Kind Family Foundation, The Race Towards More Impactful Philanthropy. And, and I guess it's not a shocker that art is, is sponsored by social impact people. But um, I'll just say that, let's see, this, this article is from 2015, I think. Yeah, 2015. Um, it says that 10 years ago, so that's 2005, which is pretty early for impact finance. It really got its start after the last crash, the economic crash of 2008. Um, but they were working on being mission aligned and they were coordinating with the reinvestment fund. Now the reinvestment fund in Philadelphia has been a major leader in pay for success finance. And this guy, Jeremy Nowak, who was with the William Penn foundation, um, was a lead. Now he, he died, uh, but he was very much intervening in a lot of things having to do with the Philadelphia school system. And so I've been keeping my eye on the reinvestment fund and they were a part of a number of those pay for success finance projects in Santa Clara County, California. And so what they're talking about is creating investments that aren't just charity, right? That give back, that have a quote unquote double bottom line. And among the, the early projects that got set up, I don't know if it was with the reinvestment fund, but was a loan uh, to a social enterprise for cleaning services. And so it was DePaul USA. And so it, they gave them a loan to buy an industrial cleaning service so that then people in their transitional housing could work at the cleaning service um, and pay off the loan, right? So, so this is gonna play into what I'm gonna be talking about, like coming up in the series about multifamily housing and controlling the workforce. Um, that, that they're, you know, on the one hand you're saying, oh look, we're giving disadvantaged people a job, but on the other hand, like you're, you're giving them certain kinds of jobs and jobs that might not lead them to better opportunities later. And you're doing it as an impact investment. So it's the kind, family that that endowed the big face that Arlene Love made. And I didn't find out a whole lot. <clears throat> I couldn't find a lot about her. I think she <clears throat> was trained at Tyler School of Art, which was is affiliated with Temple University. And uh, the face fragment was from 1976. Um, and it's right out in front of the building. Uh, she did a, a number of figures. And the one thing that I could find that was just upsetting and like, pardon the graphic, it's sort of this erotica stuff, but with like weird androgynous figures with breasts and penises. And this one is called Monstrous in Multiform. And it's like, again, a body that has breasts, but a penis and then hanging off this middle of the chest is almost like a toddler, but the head is buried in the body of the whatever like and the head has a like a white covering like a helmet kind of thing um it's it's very very i don't know it feels very esoteric and then there's another one oh joy oh bliss and again one of these other figures that has both body parts and then uh, a bull head and it's being shined on by the sun 
Uh, oh joy, oh bliss, my pulses throb. Would that I descend to the very bottom of matter for be matter itself. So this is, you know, this is, again, this isn't specifically affiliated with Monel, but this is some of this artist's other work. Um, and I won't necessarily play this, but this you can just, you know, she, this is an interview that they had had with her from about 10 years ago. Um, so yeah, so Arlene Love and the big face fragment. Um, now I'm gonna just mention here, I have a timeline of the international fragrance. Um, there's lots of these consortiums actually. Um, so many, like in the, a lot of them date back to early chemistry in the 19 teens and 20s. Uh, this company, I think it started out being, it was Dutch and Mr. Amaringen, uh, it, it described him as, you know, very charismatic, uh, again, Dutch. He, he, the, this, the quote here is, is Van, as he was known, dabbled in perfumery, was an amateur magician, a gourmet, a lover of life and a hedonist. So yeah, so, so that's, that was her father. And then, uh, yes, uh, it went on in the t 1929 for an aromatic chemical plant in New Jersey. And again, if you sort of drive up, I guess it's maybe not so much this way before, but like, you know, back in the day, New Jersey was sort of a center of like lots and lots of chemical exhaust, Northern New Jersey. Um, <clears throat> so at that, it says that as of 1929, most of their work was in the fragrance area. And, uh, then, then there was a merger and they became a supplier, a major supplier in fragrance to grow internet. So they became like international. They started like combining with a bunch of other firms. Uh, in 1970, there's a gentleman, Henry Walter or Henry Walter. I think he was the one who actually funded Monell. And it, it, so he, it says that he, he said he greatly contributed to fundamental research in these two fields by co-founding the Monell Institute and by leaving posterity a formula that was simple, powerful, and iconoclastic as himself. Quote, we are the industry of sex and hunger. Hank Walter is still considered to be one of most, the most influential people in the industry. And this was in 1970. And it goes on in 1982, they're working in the area of aroma science. Now this, I think this is maybe where like some of these essential oils ideas like come in. Um, it says that he collaborated with Yale, Yale's psychophysiology department to pioneer the concept of aroma science, which is to study the effect of fragrance on people. Uh, later, the company developed something called living flower technology, uh, using solid phase micro extraction to capture and study the aroma components of a flower at its peak. And, and, changed the, and that changed the way perfumes were created. And that was in 1985. And it's interesting because like, I can remember when I was working at Bartram's Garden, uh, one of the key plants that we have is the Franklinia alatamaha, which is, it's, a, it's related to the tea plant. And uh, it, it blooms in August. It has these white flowers, um, kind of camellia-like, I guess. And um, we did have someone come once and do, I think probably something like that, like captured, like captured the scent of the Franklinia for some sort of perfumey thing. Uh, mood mapping, this company did mood mapping techniques to identify fragrance combinations that affect emotion. 
So like, again, think about this with the metaverse. Think about what's coming, like, like smell-o-vision or whatever, like how you can subtly, and of course they know it's just like music, right? It's like, you know, like retail places, real estate places, like they know about fragrance. Like, oh, go put the cinnamon on, you know, simmering on the stove if you have a, you know, open house to sell your house. Um, it is using fragrance and either to make people comfortable or make people uncomfortable, right? Um, so, so that's interesting. And then they begin uh, working on industrial scale flavoring with pure cultures through fermentation. And so I think like all of this fermentation stuff, I think it's gonna be coming together with the bioreactors. And again, what are we gonna be calling natural versus not natural moving forward? Because they know that people actually aren't that big, fond of chemical engineering. They know that people are not that fond of, of that kind of chemical. So they're very cautious about developing new products that aren't perceived of as chemical. Um, and let's see, just this I pulled out, it was talking about that they have a health and bioscience division, which is interesting that a flavor and fragrance company has a bioscience division working on consumer products, industrial products, and agricultural products, and of course, all sustainable, and that they're going to creatively, you know, offer creative essential solutions for a better world. Uh, the tastes, experiences, ingredients, and solutions for products that the world craves. And again, this craving idea of like managing our attention through our sensory organs. Um, so I'm gonna take a minute and play this. This is maybe, about, I think this might be about a six minute clip. Um, so this is taken from the third Metaverse Congress of the IEEE, and this is Yu Yuan, who's in charge of the standards division. So he's gonna be talking about how you create a pervasive computing environment and how it, it interfaces with sensory organs, including trying to create a way to digitally, in the digital realm, make people feel drunk, <laughs> and also how to digitize senses, uh, the senses, and they said, you know, we, we're pretty good about the um, uh, visual and the hearing, but but we have to get the taste and the smell stuff. Is So Monel is actually working in this area of uh, digitizing smells and tastes, so that's right there in the center. Uh, their other research areas are nutritional health, uh, diagnosing diseases so this is interesting like if you remember at the early on with like the lockdown stuff they would say like oh dogs can smell like dogs will be able to like smell if you have some you know health status like we'll be able to smell your health status so that's interesting loss of smell and taste again another thing that is really central to what has happened to us the last couple years um and then tech transfer so again because they developed this and then they want to put it out in the corporate the corporate space and uh, oh yeah okay uh, so this is project aroma this is one of the digitizing smell stuff so uh, I'm, I'm just gonna read this off their website uh, new technology can you imagine receiving odors tastes and sensations instantaneously through new technology and your familiar handheld devices this area of Monel research may be closer than you think consider the work of the late George Prieti PhD to identify the odor signature of ovarian cancer in a drop of blood 
Imagine using a digital app on your smartphone to develop a personalized perfume or embed the smell of a rainforest into your PowerPoint on climate change. Yeah. And then Project Aroma. To get started towards this brave new world, Project Aroma, accessible repository of odor materials assessments, is evaluating the best ways to design a universal system of classifying odors. <laughs> Current models have begun to predict odor perception based on molecular structure, but are limited by the quantity and quality of perceptual data. With the help of human volunteers trained and untrained in detecting scents, we are building an open access database uh, of 10, uh, 10,000 odors. And our latest study, which uh, tested eight trained and 15 untrained participants on 50 odor stimuli, the trained group was more consistent and more fully described the odors. However, their evaluations took about seven times longer to complete than the speedier novices. These types of findings inform machine learning predictions to lay the groundwork for commercial applications. And so folks, I think this, is, this has nothing to do with us smelling uh, people's presentations like on climate change. I, I think what they're trying to do is figure out how we smell and then give that ability to machines, to AI or to robots or what have you. Like they want the robots to be able to smell. <laughs> so they wanna actually use us as the template to try to digitize it. So they're not digitizing it because they want us to have better things. They want to use our they want to use us to, to, to give it to the robots. Develop something called a, a metaverse technology landscape. So some people tend to uh, claim that everything is metaverse. Every technology is metaverse technology. I'm not in favor of that because uh, if you are doing uh, uh, that, you would uh, look like uh, you are claiming that the entire ICT industry or the entire ICT technologies are metaverse technologies, which does not really make much sense. So I'd like to divide them into supportive technologies and core technologies. Supportive technologies uh, uh, include those uh, general purpose technologies such as computation, uh, storage, communications, uh, uh, data and intelligence, and the core technologies, uh, which are really the key or the core to metaverse I divided them into three uh, categories, senses and, senses and actions, uh, which could be virtual senses, virtual actions, or real senses and real actions, uh, based on sensors and actuators, and uh, uh, based on brain-machine interface, uh, or body-machine interface, or programming interface, uh, to uh, feed the input and get an output from either human or creature, or NPC and AI or other machines. And the second category, I call that persistent computing. We will be addressing that later at a panel. So the persistent computing is about how to create persistent virtual worlds. Uh, the underneath engines include physics engines, uh, graphics engines, and uh, engines for sounds and uh, things like that. And then we will have uh, modeling, designing, and uh, uh, digital content creation technologies such as PGC professional generated uh, content and UGC uh, user generated content and uh, artificial intelligence uh, uh, plus uh, PGC and uh, uh, artificial intelligence plus UGC and uh, uh, artificial intelligence uh, generated content and also digital twin 
generation content uh, to support uh, virtual map, virtual things, virtual objects, and virtual characters. And lastly, we have an optional uh, component, which I call that digital finance and the economy, uh, including digital assets, which uh, most, most of them would be uh, virtual assets, but there could be other digital assets, such as IP uh, in the digital world. And uh, they may or may not be based on decentralization, and the decentralization may or may not be based on blockchain. So that's my view of the uh, metaverse technology landscape. With that being said, uh, I would like to emphasize that it's not uh, too easy to uh, implement that, especially in terms of how to uh, create a true metaverse, a metaverse that is indistinguishable from uh, our current universe. So uh, I have some uh, grand challenges identified. The first one is about uh, uh, virtual senses and actions. Uh, this is my favorite example. Uh, we know that uh, we have been talking about uh, using XR technologies to uh, uh, simulate uh, uh, like uh, uh, your sight, hearing, smell and taste and other kinds of senses. But even we can do a perfect job uh, about those kind of uh, senses, we are still not able to simulate the feeling that your body uh, 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 feels after you drink alcohol. Uh, generate dop dopamine, and then you uh, feel pre pleasure uh, produced after uh, your consciousness or your brain uh, uh, will feel after drinking alcohol. So that is uh, a grand challenge in my mind, uh, in my opinion. Uh, in other words, this is about how to achieve comprehensive and ultra-realistic virtual senses and actions. Uh, I have some explanation about this. I think currently what we are doing uh, with all kinds of XR devices is about uh, the uh, interface marked uh, in green, the interface between your uh, senses and the outside world. So we are doing well for uh, sight and hearing because we have found the basic elements uh, of sight and hearing, uh, like uh, we have the basic colors for uh, any kinds of uh, uh, vision signals, vision input, uh, and we know that all kinds of any sound can be uh, composed by uh, different uh, frequencies of, uh, of sound waves. So that's the reason why we are doing a relatively good job uh, to uh, simulate uh, vision and uh, hearing uh, input. But uh, for uh, other kinds of senses, such as touch, uh, we have no idea what the basic elements are, what the basic building blocks are. And uh, uh, so do the uh, smell and the taste. We have no idea what are the, their basic elements that we can use as building blocks to simulate uh, all kinds of input. But uh, with that being said, uh, uh, as my uh, previous example indicates, uh, even we can uh, achieve all of this, uh, all, all kinds of uh, senses, we are still uh, not able to simulate uh, other kinds of feelings such as the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, your, your feeling after you drink alcohol, that's a good example. So uh, in my opinion, we have to move to another interface 
which is marked in uh, red on uh, in, in this diagram, uh, the interface between your consciousness uh, and your senses, which means we need a brain machine interface, those uh, uh, input directly feed into your consciousness. That's that's the ultimate uh, solution. Uh, but uh, with that being said, uh, we have a long way to go, because uh, currently uh, all of our solutions are still based on uh wearing uh, uh wearable uh headsets and uh, devices uh which are yeah so they're trying to teach the robots how to smell but <laughs> i have my beautiful sweet grass today eileen thank you so much and it smells it smells ma magical and yeah i know yeah Good luck with that, Yu Yuan. Okay, so so what did we leave at Monel? So these are some of the pictures. So here's here's the building itself, the big, you know, it's again, I keep saying these are not really exciting buildings. They're not very exciting buildings. Uh, you can see a little bit of the ISI building reflected. So you've got the, the statue here, and at the base of the statue is where we left our little uh, set, our, the intention that we set. So here is it in the, the the large phase so it's it's still winter here in the uh, northeast mid-atlantic so i i still have my my basket most of the things in here i i collected a while back and they're dry <laughs> um but i did gather a few evergreens on uh, the walk from my car to the coffee shop and there was one bush that had a beautiful little buds here so these little pink buds and my friend brought this lovely little bouquet i think it had some rue which is the green and some lavender and some grass grassy seed heads um, that were all bundled together in such a lovely little way and so we we pulled off again. You'll you'll know these by now. The Eve's uh, satellite beach shells and acorns because always planting seeds. I did have a locust pod, and I had a little bit of sage. That's I don't know if you can see the sage there um, in my backyard. Most of the other herbs are done, um, and a little bit of grass from Bartram's garden. And you can see. Oh, and I in my backyard, which is teeny tiny, but I do have some Lenten rose, some hellebores. So I, I, I have some hellebores and then I brought the little heart and we sprinkled some uh, sacred tobacco. Someone had sent me tobacco and clover um, from the Pacific Northwest, I think. So you the little brown bits here, you can see around that some tobacco. Oh, and there were a few other bits. There are these little purple, purpley bits. It's sort of purple and brown. Um, but yeah, so it was nice. So that's, um, that's what we left. You can sort of see a close up. I, I, I cut out a little purple heart uh, of felt. And, um, oh, and there's a love and a puff. Can you see the love and a puff there? I love that. I think those are really sweet. It's probably full. Of, so who knows? Oh, and I did pick, oh, in my little pot in the backyard, I have some dandelion. They're not flowering, but I have some leaves. So in all of them, I put some leaves and then uh, some uh, milkweed puffs. Uh, but look, isn't that the pink? It's so, now that's spring. That's sort of like a Northeastern spring. Okay, so okay, so that's Monel. So we've got 
digitizing fragrance. Uh, and then, I, you know, I mentioned I was going to talk about MetaNexus, uh, that its its office w was originally in the University City Science Park. This is an article from 2002 with the Templeton Foundation. And I've done a lot of talking about the Templeton Foundation before, but they're really interested in bringing, again, the faith, like creating essentially a science-based faith, like integrating science into faith, and then also these free markets and theoretical physics to, I guess, like boost us into some neo-Lamarckian superpower zone. Um, so they they gave announced a $3 million grant um, for the MetaNexus Institute for Science and Religion uh, to expand interdisciplinary, interreligious dialogue about the interface of science and theology. So this is this was situated at least for 10 years. I think by 2011, they relocated to New York. Um, but the dialogue between science and religion, again, working on big questions, um, new ways of thinking, transcending, transformation. Um, it was actually founded in 1997. So it was five years old when it got that big grant to get new office space and trying to sort of integrate things. So I sort of imagine this is part of this integral theory aspect. I, it's not officially integral theory, but it seems like it has that. It's in keeping with that, this idea of big history and big questions. Um, and then I just want to go through some of the people who are affiliated with it. The, the, the founding director, his name was William Grassi, uh, G-R-A-S-S-I-E. And he, let's see, he, he undergraduate at Mil Middlebury College, got a doctorate in religion at Temple, has taught at a number of like local universities, um, and was a, a fellow with the Templeton Foundation and let's see, a senior Fulbright fellow in the Department of Buddhist Studies at the University of Paradinha in Kandy, Sri Lanka. Uh, author of The New Sciences of Religion, Exploring Spirituality from the Outside In and the Bottom Up. Uh, advanced Methodologies in the Scientific Study of Religion and Spirituality and H plus slash minus transhumanism and its critics. So it's sort of a trans in the transhumanist framing. Uh, these are people who are on, who are on their board. Uh, Michelle, or were at least, I, I don't know if the, the website is totally up to date. Um, Michelle Demers, who was a phil philanthropy executive uh, doing sort of social impact platforms and had formerly worked uh, for Humanity United, a foundation created by Pam and Pierre Omidyar. So that's really significant. Uh, a woman, Joan Costionio, Emeritus at the School of Human Evolution and Social Change at Arizona State, uh, a focus on the intersection of anthropology, psychiatry, and psychology. And so I did go to that building at Arizona State University. Uh, Kathleen Duffy, a professor of physics at Chestnut Hill College, who is on the board of the American Talhard Association, Talhard Desjardins Omega Point. And then also, let's see, Mitchell Marcus, uh, prof RCA professor of artificial intelligence at Penn, who is also a professor of linguistics. And this is where we'll get back to Eugene Garfield is AI and linguistics. Uh, let's see, a Jerry Orstrom, a private investor, private equity firm founded by his grandfather in the 40s. Uh, he headed up a foundation. He's very devoted to the nonprofit sector, it said. And that for 2008 to 2010, he was the co-chair of the President's Council of Cold Spring Harbor Lab, which is eugenics. 
Roberto Poli, adjunct at the University of Trento in Italy. Um, now, he speaks uh, philosophy, applied ethics, and future studies. And I bring this out because Trento, University of Trento, is really central in uh, Sandy Pentland and John Clippinger's work. Uh, there's a lot going on in the University of Trento. Martin Seligman, who I'll talk about later, but learned helplessness and positive psychology. Uh, Ronald Cole Turner, professor of ethics. Um, uh, at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, he edited the collection Transhumanism and Transcendence, Christian Hope in an Age of Technological Enhancement. So again, we're definitely going in the age like this Lamarckianism stuff is, is transhuman. Uh, and this was a fellow who was affiliated, John Hott, H-O-U-G-H-T. Uh, he was a senior fellow in science and religion at the Woodstock Theological Center at Georgetown a formerly professor and chair of his Department of Theology at Georgetown. His specialization is systemic theology with an interest in science, cosmology, evolution, ecology, and religion. So it's sort of like the origins of the universe. So we've got Metanexus, then we have, you know, Templeton. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've shared a couple of these maps before. Uh, this one is talking about, this was a funding... Um, I think this was a grant about goal-directedness with cybernetics and chemical organization theory. Now, again, that's kind of interesting to think about because later on we'll talk about Eugene Garfield and that his uh, PhD dissertation at Penn and Linguistics was an algorithm to convert language to chemical signals, like chemical language into symbols. Um, like, but how the cybernetics and chemical organization fits into that. Um, you know, uh, John Templeton was Presbyterian. <laughs> I was just talking with some folks about like the role of the Presbyterians and all this. And I will note that the the main divinity school for the Presbyterians in the United States is in Princeton. So it's really just a stone's throw from the Institute for Advanced Studies where all the physics is happening. And uh, yeah, so he was very much, so the money of John Templeton that he made was in mutual fund development, really building out the mutual fund space. And then eventually he, in the 80s, I think, gave up his US citizenship, became a British citizen, moved to the Bahamas, and he was knighted by the queen. Um, so the areas that he's focused on are genetics, cognitive talent and genius, character, virtue, uh, science, including theoretical physics, voluntary family planning, and freedom and free markets. And so this is all about the, the advancements. Um, and then this is another map that I made. This is on the descent map. Um, they were funding uh, spiritual capital. So I think that's part of what Metanexus was about, was a project to fund spiritual capital. Um, and they, they've given money to just so, so, so many things. Often they work in partnership with the Fetzer Institute. Um, and the Fetzer Institute was really centered on consciousness studies. And... Um, they were giving some seed funding to something called Chapman University, which I hadn't really had a chance to go into that much, but one of the people from the Mormon Transhumanist Conference, Tom Bell, uh, he was a professor of law, internet law at Chapman. And Chapman was originally, it's in California, it was a Disciples for Christ school, originally called Hesperian College. Um, and the benefactor of that school was a citrus king, uh, Charles Clark, who was related to John Chapman, who was Johnny Appleseed. And Johnny Appleseed, I didn't realize, was Swedenborgian. So, um, 
anyway, I'm just sort of like going through some things about the Templeton Foundation. Again, their connection with consciousness, their connection with spiritual capital. Like again, the science of religion, coming up with the science of it. Um, this is from their website, in Inspiring Awe and Wonder. Do we inhabit a multiverse? Do we have free will? Was the universe created? What is love? We believe in the power of the sciences and other discovery-oriented disciplines to advance our understanding of these complex questions. And then there's a there's a bunch of jelly, purple jellyfish there. So um, I thought, okay, so here's the spiritual capital effort. Uh, this was in early, wow, this was in 2005. So this was early with MetaNexus. And it says the, the expansion of research into spiritual capital reflects increasing recognition by scientists of the legitimacy of this field of study. It is in fact an offshoot of the equally pioneering concept of social capital developed by Professor Robert Putnam, another Templeton grantee. So social capital, we know all about social capital and how that's gonna fit on the blockchain, right? Um, after Putnam's work revealed that more than 50% of all social capital derived from religious institutions, it was an obvious priority to design a research to investigate this. Um, so, so, so MetaNexus was investing, investigating spiritual capital. Um, you know, which is interesting. And just here, here is, was a heading header for, uh, the foundation at the time. I think this webpage is older from their 2008 capabilities report, but, um, yeah, pursuing big questions, medical science, free enterprise, human science, character development, gifted education, uh, global perspectives, life science, physical and math, world science festival, humble approach. I'm not sure what that is. So yeah, so MetaNexus based in University City, funded by Templeton in spiritual capital. Now, Templeton also gave a lot of money to develop the field of positive neuroscience. And that came about as a, a, in alignment with the work of uh, Martin Seligman, uh, who is a professor uh, at the University of Pennsylvania in positive psychology. So this, this positive neuroscience work is about like looking at how the nervous system affects our well-being. So just think about that again, because they're very interested in well-being metrics and like using sensor technologies to track well-being metrics. So like how would like that affect the built environment if what they're trying to do is like monitor our nervous system and in terms of assessing our well-being. So they gave um, Martin Seligman $5.8 million to set up a positive neuroscience project. And they, they funded a bunch of like 15 different projects to work in that area. So you might say, well, who is Martin Seligman? Well, here, here it is. Who is Martin Seligman and what does he do? He is called the father of positive psychology. He was born in 1942 in New York. And uh, he developed a clinical training at the University of Pennsylvania around learned helplessness. And then positive psychology, which I guess is the inversion of learned helplessness, resilience, optimism, and pessimism. And I'm saying this because I think both Seligman and Angela Duckworth did work at my kids' school, which was a magnet school, so it would sort of fall under that like gifted and talented groups, which is really ugh, like gross to think about it. Um, although I'm sure like lots of parents there would think that it was like marvelous that that was a thing. Um, but you know they're they, they're trying to put such a nice spin on positive psychology, but it's it's going to be really black mirror if essentially what they're asking is like they're gaslighting you about how horrible the world is, and then they're they're making you want to make you act as though you're happy about it and well adjusted about it. 
So, um, so much of the, the, the funding that Seligman has gotten at Penn comes from the military, actually, uh, because it's about resilience. And so essentially what they want to be able to do is, you know, put people in harm's way in ways that is psychologically damaging and then prepare them in ways that gives them resilience for it, I guess, either in the in the in in the face of action or in the aftermath through P, like addressing PTSD. So this is just a, a, a search from the US Army website uh, about for Seligman. Um, Army chief partners with outside medical community on warrior care. Uh, warrior care, Army chief partners with civilian medical community. Class Act, MRT course opens on Fort Jackson. Um, US Army holds first master resilience course in Korea. Comprehensive soldier fitness marks change in army culture. So, and, and part of what Seligman was doing was this stuff called authentic happiness, which is really kind of messed up. Um, I think that's here. Is this now flourish? Um, this is from 2011. Flourish 2051. Martin Seligman's new innovative initiative calls for a global boost in well-being by 2051, helping people find meaning, cope better with stress, and improve their relationships. You know, improved mental health for flourishing. Um, the world is turning from a victimology, apology-oriented view of human nature to aspirations and well-being about flourishing. It is in our hands not only to witness but take part. His new initiative will require more than psychotherapies, one-on-one -on -one sessions and building resiliency. Schools, governments, organizations, and corporations need to boost well-being by tapping into, uh, guess, wait for it, wait for it, emerging technology and social media. So why would Martin Seligman want everybody on social media in terms of like our managed flourishing? Well, it, it, I'm sure it wouldn't have anything to do with the project, um, the World Wellbeing Project. <laughs> Um, so he's the principal investigator of this World Wellbeing Project, and I, I can't find it, but there was this really long-form article about it that I probably read about four years ago. Um, and essentially, this is all sentiment analysis on all of the t text, all the language that we put out into the digital space, and they were using it to assess people's mental health status and their, their perspective, and then to use, to I, like, pour through all of the, the wording that they use in the structure of their sentences and probably also the emoticons and everything else, which is just like compressed sentiment and, um, and then start to make predictions about people's genders, about their race, about, you know, all sorts of other things. Um, and, and so that was part of the, uh, world wellbeing project, which was funded by the military. Um, so among the, the press, uh, articles that came out about this, uh, Penn researchers use Facebook data to predict users' age, gender, and personality traits. Um, Penn researchers use Facebook as a psychology tool. Study status update language used to predict Facebook users' age, gender, and personality. Okay, so clearly they were working closely with Facebook. Um, and then this is a, a paper that came out in 2016, personality, gender, and age in the language of social media, the open vocabulary approach. So, so much of this also, it has to do with linguistics. And uh, this is one of the images that was from that paper that was separating uh, words, words, uh, words and grammatical structures that women would use versus men. Like, you know, in, you know, the women's were like, so excited, shopping, mommy, cute, you know, whatever, besties, babe, 
and and then and then the guys are like football <laughs> league fuck economy taxes government fuck fuck whatever battle victory so uh, so that's that's that i mean that's like nothing too much of a shocker like we've known this is going on already but this is important context like this is why i was like so so the positive psychology center uh, this is this is the building that I went to, 3701 Market Street, uh, and the, among they they research many things: uh, human flourishing, the World Wellbeing Project, Primal World Beliefs, Imagination Institute, Grit, Positive Health, uh, Perspective Psychology, Positive Neuroscience. That's the Templeton one. Transcendence Research, Resilience in Children, in College Students. Um, attributional Style in Adults, Attributional Style in Children, Learned Helplessness. Um, effective, effectiveness of treatments and the cave technique. I don't know what the cave technique is, but it's kind of creepy. Like in, in the image there, it's called seeing happy. And it's like an eyeball camera that's magenta. That's like looking, it's very abstract, but like what is seeing us happy? Like I, I guess seeinghappy.org, it must be a nonprofit. I should have looked that up. Yeah, it's, it's kind of creepy. So these are all the work and a lot of it, a lot of it is, is military money. So when we talk about learned helplessness, he was among the, the pioneers in sort of identifying this. And I think I've talked about this before, but essentially like with Pavlov and Skinner, like you can train like animals to do things based on rewards and punishments. But only if there's a pattern to it that the people can actually, if, if the, the, the subjects of the experiment can in, to it like what is the desired behavior and then make a choice about whether they go along with the desired behavior. What learned helplessness was about was to impose things, like to essentially create such random patterns that nobody, that no one would be able to assess what the proper behavior was. And so eventually, this was in the case with, the, these were dogs, they would just give up. Like you, you would shock them, you would do, like they wouldn't do anything because there was nothing that they could do to eliminate the shock or make their life any better because everything was totally random which I think in in many respects is like what we lived through during the lockdowns that was a learned helplessness exercise like all of the things that were so arbitrary and inconsistent and didn't make any sense like that was part of the learned helplessness behavior so now what Seligman would say would be like oh like yeah I, I I learned all about that but then I wanted to like do the positive stuff to like how do we get people out of it like if we if you have learned helplessness like how do we turn it around on people but you know, even later on in his career, um, you know, here he's, he's re revisiting it. Learned helplessness at 50 insights from neuroscience. This is from 2017. Like he never really dropped it. Like his initial paper was in 1967, right around the same time the University Sciences Center was getting off the ground. And um, there's a long form article in the New Yorker called Trying to Cure Depression But Inspiring Torture that, that talks about like Seligman giving a briefing to the to military officials who then later deployed these techniques in Guantanamo um, to torture people. And, you know, I'm just going to read this is this is a section from this New Yorker article. Uh, let's see, the New Yorker article is from 19, 2015. So this is still very much, um, you know, like in our current understanding. In early December 2014, the Senate Intelligence Committee released its report on the torture techniques used by the Central Intelligence Agency in questioning terror suspects since the 9-11 attacks. 
The, re the report included hundreds of painfully graphic images, and it revealed that starting in 2002, many of the most brutal techniques were developed under the direction of two psychologists contracted by the agency, James E. Mitchell and Bruce Jessen. Much of the torture was justified through experimental psychology. Quote, neither psychologist had any experience as an interrogator, nor did either have specialized knowledge of Al-Qaeda, a background in counterterrorism, or any relevant cultural or linguistic expertise, the report stated. But all the same, they had created what they thought would be a winning approach, theories of interrogation based on learned helplessness, which the report specified was the theory that detainees might become passive and depressed in response to adverse or uncontrollable events, and would thus cooperate and provide information. One of the psychologists, the one who went by the pseudonym Grayson Swigert, who has been identified as Mitchell, had reviewed research on learned helplessness and had theorized that inducing such a state could encourage a detainee to cooperate and provide information. He had also, months before, began to, b before he began to advise the CIA, attended, attended Seligman's post-9-11 gathering. He had been the one to come up to speak with the psychologist and to express his admiration. To understand the nature of learned helplessness, one needs to travel back to Seligman's early graduate school days in the laboratory of Richard Solomon at the University of Pennsylvania. When Seligman began his studies, Solomon's lab was working with dogs on a phenomenon that Ivan Pavlov had first identified as aversive conditioning or avoidance learning. The researchers administered shocks to animals accompanied by tones or lights so that they could come to associate the tone or light stimuli with the shock's onset, and in some cases then learn to avoid the shock by jumping over a barrier. Solomon would then work to see if he could get the dogs to, in effect, unlearn the association. When Seligman arrived at the lab, he noticed that some of the dogs had started to act rather strangely. Instead of trying to figure out how to avoid a new shock, they just sat there. They didn't even try to figure it out. Teaming up with a fellow graduate student, Stephen Meyer, Seligman began to study what was going on. In a series of experiments, Selig Seligman and Meyer first attached the dogs to a harness, a kind of rubberized cloth hammock with holes for the dog's legs to dang dangle free. As the dogs hung, their heads were kept in place by two panels, which they could easily press with their heads. At random intervals coming between 60 and 90 seconds apart, they would receive a series of shocks to their hind feet. Some of the dogs could control the shocks with a simple press of the head against either side of the panel. For others, the head pressing did nothing. The moment the dogs with the functional panels touched either one of those, the shock ended. Otherwise, it lasted for 30 seconds to begin with and for increasingly shorter durations thereafter. The next day, each dog was set free inside a shuttle box, a two compartment cage separated by an adjustable barrier. Each time the lights in the box went off, half the floor would become electrified, shocking the poor animals. But if the dog jumped over the barrier and into the next cage, the shock could be avoided. This time, each dog had the power to end its discomfort quite easily. When Seligman and Meyer analyzed the results, they found a consistent pattern. The dogs that had learned to avoid the shocks by pressing their heads against the panels on the first day were quick to jump the barrier on day two. Not a single dog failed to learn to jump quickly after the first go-round. Those that had been unable to escape the shocks, though, weren't even trying. They were free to move, explore, and escape, but they didn't. Two-thirds of them were still hovering in the electrified side of the box by the end of the experiment. And for the remaining third, the average number of trials to learn to escape was just more than seven out of a total of ten. A week later, five of the six dogs had failed to learn, were still unwilling to even try. They once again failed the shuttle box test. The effect of the harness experiment was both severe and lasting. 
Seligman and Meyer called what they were observing learned helplessness, the same term that would resurface in Seligman's lecture and in the Senate torture report. The phenomenon was reliably strong, reliably broad, that is, it transferred from one situation to another, and reliably difficult to change once it set in. It was motivational, you no longer even try. Emotional, you whimper and grow resigned, and cognitive, you generalize one experience to apply to a broader existence. And it wasn't confined to dogs. Soon others picked up on their work, demonstrating similar effects in cats, fish, rats, and the favorite of all experimental animals, college students. But Seligman didn't stop his research there. He had told his supervisor that he didn't believe in causing suffering unless it had some inherent value that would lead to bettering lives, both canine and human. So he and Meyer set out to figure out a way to reverse the effect of learned helplessness on the dogs. And what they found was that one simple tweak could stop the passivity from developing. When the researchers first put all the dogs in the shuttle box, where the shock was controllable by a jump and only then into the inescapable harness, the effect of the harness was broken. Now, even though dogs were being bombarded by shocks, they didn't give up. They kept trying to control the situation, pressing the panels despite the lack of feedback. And when they were again put into the box, they didn't cower. Instead, they immediately reclaimed their ability to avoid the shocks. That was what Seligman had been after. If dogs could be inured to learned helplessness, then potentially so could people. So I think that this idea of confinement and controlled environments and discomfort is really central to what's coming with the Web3 uh, Inside Out robot. Um, so yeah, so this is this is Martin Seligman. And uh, let's see, this was the this is the building that the Positive Psychology Center is in, 3701 Market Street. And again, this is the the uh, signboard outside, Penn Medicine, Drexel School of Engineering, and data centers. And uh, on the approach, they have this sort of strange art project that's sort of like a, I don't know, like, they're not trees. They're like, I don't know, umbrella kind of sculptural things. Like you walk under like a little portico with like a cage on top. It doesn't have anything natural connected to it, but it is in these rainbow colors and magenta. Uh, this is a, a view looking up towards the sky. You can kind of see how bland and boring all of the buildings are. Uh, and the rainbow colors. Here's another one looking, looking up at the building itself. Standard eight story or so office building. And so on this one, so there were two places that we, like initially I was thinking that we might put it like on the sidewalk in this little pergola area, but I thought it would just get kicked over. Um, so we ended up tucking it under in the like little planter bed. And so two of the, the hearts that we left were actually on these uh, boxes, like a, you know, mechanical equipment boxes. Uh, one of them says communication, which I thought good, like in resonance. And then this one is electric, it just said electric, but we know it's all bioelectric. Um, so this is the, the what, what we left outside of Seligman's office. And I picked up some IV um, and, you know, it's, you know, eclectic. Again, the winter, so we don't have tons. I still have a few of the little Rochester dandelions left. And... Um, Someone from Texas sent me this thistle. It's very prickery. I think this is one of my last thistle pieces. Um, and I have, again, some hellebores. And you can see in this one, there's a bit of rice um, from my friend in the, the upper Midwest. Uh, we have uh, 
little hemlock cones and pine cones and acorns. Uh, this is, I think, the last of the little heart, heart, uh, sewn hearts that my friend, friend's friend sent to me. Um, and it, it actually was a little jean heart and with a pocket. And so I put the little, uh, this is another one of these pink buds in there. Um, and you can see a little bit of sage and these feathery grasses. These are, I think, from the meadow of Bartram's garden, the, the grasses here. And, um, you know, evergreen, evergreen ivy. And maybe a tiny bit of mugwort. And over here we have one of Eve's shells, the scallop shell in a milkweed pod. And I did, oh, and there was, a, there was, so I have some rose petals that are surrounding this one. The next one will be more rose petals. Um, but uh, from Valentine's Day, I have like a whole, like my husband brought me like all these nice roses. So I've been drying them out. And, um, but when we, we came up, I was like, is that another heart? So it was an earring actually. And with red and gold. And my friend was wearing like gold colored jacket and I had a red colored jacket. So it was, it was perfect. But you can see, you can see the rice here. So this is, this is the heart that we left outside of 3701, the Penn Positive Psychology Center, trying to sort of offset that. Look at the hellebore, isn't it lovely? And we tucked a little bit of rice. You can see the rice in there. Nice, nice, nice. I mean, nature is so gloriously beautiful. I just love that. That's from my backyard, my little tiny backyard. Okay, so that's Martin Seligman. And then there was a mural that was next to Martin Seligman's building. It's called Interconnection. So this is the whole side um, uh, of the building, 3701. And actually our little heart is sort of like down here near the bottom in the little sort of planter bed on the electrical box. And uh, yeah, so you can see it's like one, two, three, four, five, it's six stories tall. And this, uh, the woman who did it, Melinda Beck, she has a lot of other murals. There's one at the New York Public Library. And at first, you know, like I, I thought I didn't really see that the bodies, how the, that they're all working because they're, they're going into holes. So it's, it's done in sort of a trompe l'oeil effect that it looks like it's, it's not flat. Like it's like an alcove a bit. I'm just realizing that. So it looks like they're in an alcove and then there's portals sticking out. And so their body parts are sticking in and out of portals, which is interesting if you think about the whole metaverse, right? Um, they're not, their body isn't all in one space. They're across interdimensional, I guess, in some ways. Like this, this woman is in multiple dimensions. Her feet are in two different holes and her arms are in one hole. Um, and then there are these periscopes, which are like viewing portals, which is kind of interesting when you think about like extended sensory organs. And, you know, at the base, you have a woman in a pear, which isn't actually, an, it's not an apple at least, but it's a pear. And it, it's, it's very duality. Um, and then lots of circles and geometric shapes and so on and so forth. So uh, yeah, so that's the overview. It's called Interconnection. Uh, it's part of Mural Arts program. And you know, it, it's interesting. Now that I'm looking at the logo for Mural Arts, that looks sort of electrical too, right? Like a cardiac rhythm or something or an economic graph. Um, it was it was put together by the the sponsors, the Wexford Science, they, they do the, um, I forgot to mention them too. They, they, they were developers, developers of these kinds of, uh, urban areas and 
I'm just gonna look a little bit closer. So it says, so it's an 80 foot tall mural. It was put up recently in 2021. Um, and essentially it's it's to sort of speak to, it's with the, uh, the Science Center and the uh, People's Emergency Center. And so the People's Emergency Center is part of a social impact finance program. And so they're really uplifting this idea of taking teenagers from local high schools and middle school students for experiments with prefer experienced professionals. So that's, that's what this mural is supposed to be, like I guess a riff on their educational programs. Um, which starts to get kind of creepy if like, like you're looking at this image and you've got the creepy guy with the periscope staring like at the top of the heads of these kids. And um, so underneath you have the woman who, you know, there's there's plants growing out of her head and her back and she's reaching for a piece of fruit. Uh, she's kind of submerged. Uh, then you have these, these figures who are all disoriented, right? Like if you're imagining sort of a they're not oriented to the ground, really. They're all pivoting in different different dimensionalities. Uh, this particular one, the people actually have holes in their bodies that are uh, these sort of, uh, I don't know, like constructor things. I don't know if they're like molecules or graphs uh, with nodes and lines, vectors and nodes uh, going right straight through their bodies. They have on virtual reality headsets um, and their, their bodies are all contorted in and out of these portals. Um, Here's one where you actually see that there's a, a woman and a man and both of their chests have holes in them, which, you know, we, we've talked a lot about the heart, the power of the heart. So like their heart isn't there and they have this artificial thing going through uh, with these poles. Um, and it, it's sort of, I guess it's evocative of the sky because you have an airplane and a rocket. So they're like... Yeah, they're just disorienting. Like everything is disoriented. And this is the woman at the bottom. She's coming out of the peak hole and she's got a pear and she, they're watering her on her head and she has flowers growing out of her forehead and out of her hair. And then in this section, that's near the top, there are women with long, geometrically shaped long hair, like ponytails. And in different circular patterns, geometric circular patterns, again, with the one of them, several of them have their eyes covered in virtual reality glasses. And then the, the circles sort of bend out of their hair and like into the environment. And then one of them's, their, her hair actually looks like it's being deconstructed in little balls, like DNA, like CRISPR. And um, one young woman she has is carrying these, I don't know what you call them. Um, I don't think it's an icosahedron, uh, but it is definitely like a rainbow geometric solid shape that looks like a ball. So sort of this idea of molecular design. So I wanted to make sure that you guys could sort of see see these images because I think this mural is significant and the little the the intention we set was at the base of that. And oh, and then I forgot to also mention the Wexford Science and Technology. Uh, center that they have a lot of these campuses. So they're doing the management of this development at this point. Uh, they're also doing Biopark in Baltimore, University Technology Park in Chicago, downtown Durham in Durham, North Carolina, Hershey Center for Applied Research in Hershey, Converge Miami in Miami, downtown Crossing in New Haven, Connecticut, 
Innovation Research Park in Norfolk, Virginia, UCD Square in Philadelphia, that's what we're talking about, uh, the Phoenix Bioscience Corps in Phoenix, Pittsburgh Knowledge Community in Pittsburgh, Providence Innovation and Design in Providence, Rhode Island, Aggie Square in Sacramento, California, Cortex Innovation Community, and BRDG Park in St. Louis, Missouri, and Innovation Quarter in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. So these are all of these sort of integrated, uh, let's see, what, what words do they use? Wexford has developed or is developing 17 innovation ecosystems in partnership with our institutional partners across 11 states with projects in key urban centers, including Baltimore, Chicago, Durham, Miami, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Phoenix, Providence, Sacramento, San Diego, Seattle, and St. Louis. And like among the universities that, because again, like this is all tech transfer. This is all the university sort of stepping in. Um, you know, being the bridge between the government and, you know, private enterprise, Arizona State, UC Davis, Penn, University of Pennsylvania, Brown, University of Maryland, University of Pittsburgh, Drexel, University of Miami, Washington, University of St. Louis, Duke, Penn State, and Wake Forest. Um, so these are all part of these larger developments. Angela Duckworth. Okay, so Martin Seligman and Angela Duckworth, I'm pretty sure that they work together. Oh, well, before we go over there, I'll just, I'll click on this. This is the, the neighborhood black bottom that they removed for blight removal, this whole area from Lancaster Avenue to Walnut Street. Um, yeah, it says black bottom in West Philadelphia was entirely raised in the 19, R-A-Z-E-D, not R-A-I-S-E-D, um, torn down in the 1960s by federally financed urban renewal. Um, estimated number of those displaced being as high as 10,000 people. So, and so this is the, the housing in 1930. It's all built up. Um, and it was the, the redevelopment was spearheaded by the academic and medical institutions, including Penn, Drexel, University of the Sciences, and Penn Medicine. And they did this, they, they again, dislocated 10,000 people with federal, the Federal Housing Act of 1949 that covered the two-thirds of the cost of municipal urban renewal and slum clearance. Um, yeah, so I think this is all really important to consider, like, as we start to talk about housing and universal basic income and evictions and pay for success finance is like, what are these housing authorities actually really doing? And a lot of times the stuff that they say they are doing in terms of benefiting people there, it's not, it's actually harming people in very serious ways. Um, this is one of the, the buildings blight in 1960. It's the, these little row houses, these little two story row houses. Um, working with the, the redevelopment authority. On January 9th, 1948, the Planning Commission certified eight areas for redevelopment, including an area in West Philadelphia titled Redevelopment Area Number 4. Five weeks earlier, the Executive Committee of the University's Development Fund had passed a resolution calling for the Trustees Committee on Physical Development to pre prepare a comprehensive model of Penn's future campus. So yeah, so they had their eyes on that. And um, this is what, you know, they weren't all torn down buildings. This is, this is some of the housing, these beautiful Victorian, you know, shops, storefronts. That's all, all gone. Um, yeah. And this is an image of what it was in 1939, I guess. Although that's, it's interesting. And then two, uh, 2022, like you can see how it's all built in. It's definitely not a residential area anymore. It's all office space. 
and then, you know, we've just got Penn. Here's a, here's a Penn picture. Climate and Sustainability Action Plan, <laughs> homepage of Penn, mirror, mirror image there. Um, okay, so yeah, so I'm gonna go on to the character lab. Uh, ben Franklin Technology Partners, they're, they're working to do the financing of all the incubator jobs. So growing Philadelphia's region's technology ecosystem for good, right? Because all of the, the biotech has to be framed as like a social benefit. Um, so they're providing incubator space. Uh, let's see. It says it's been around for 35 years. So I guess the mid-90s and $200 million invested in launching 2,000 companies. Um, and again, this is all tech transfer stuff, right? Like use, using these public-private partnerships uh, across universities and health systems to develop the incubator businesses. Um, Drexel is, a, is an active participant in this. Uh, this is one of their buildings, IC at 3401, uh, that was a, a tech incubator with the University City Science Center and Drexel. Uh, at the time, it said the anchor tenant was the character lab. I think maybe they've moved down to where I'm going to show you next, uh, but that it was also home to the Digital Health Accelerator, Drexel Ventures, and Global Startups, uh, and that you know, $54 million raised, and that these the companies that would come in there and get started were like they I guess they would spend a couple years or 12 months, a, a year to a year and a half, and. Um, yeah, so we're, we're launching all the tech stuff. Um, now, I want to point out, and this is where the history is important, uh, that Drexel University was founded in 1891 by Anthony Drexel. Anthony Drexel was a financier. Uh, his father, essentially he and his father, and I did sort of another talk, a longer talk about this when I did my, some other site work, but they, they would trade paper, which means like there were all these different currencies before there was a standardized dollar. And like for cross-border payments, you would do IOUs and then those IOUs would be um, exchanged and discounted depending on the value, the perceived value of the paper. So that's what Anthony Drexel did. And then he became the mentor to JP Morgan. So, uh, so it's important when you understand Drexel, like what Drexel actually represents. And then this is a little map that I have. This is from the California Digital Identity uh, map. Uh, and it just has a, a little bit about uh, Drexel University, but at the time, I think I was looking at, um, uh, let's see, opportunity zones, which I'm going to go into in more detail with, in the series uh, with flow, the, the the flow stuff, the the repurposing, like using the red line, like looking at the, the the clearance, and then redeveloping for the new the new version of the city. Um, and the guidelines were developed by something called this New Globalism uh, Group. Uh, and one of the authors of the book of the New Localism paper for sustainability was Bruce Katz. And he had ties to Drexel and Brookings Institution. And um, yeah, so I think that's going to be all connected to the DAOs. Um, in addition to Drexel, Anthony Drexel, the JP Morgan's you know, mentor, you know, that connection, in 1952, it was actually also the birthplace of the barcode. And the barcode being, again, early phase RFID chips, sensor networks chips. So I think uh, trading paper and the barcoding and of life, because that's that's what it's going to be, the, the trading of us in the game. And so that's what Drexel does. They have a cooperative model of education. So they, they have both in-class learning and then they have school co-op learning. Um, and a lot of it is around tech and also arts management. So technology and arts and culture management. Okay. And 
Yeah, so there's, there's Anthony Drexel, the man who made Wall Street, the rise of modern finance. So, you know, the history matters. The history definitely matters. Uh, it, the, his little bio here, the, the book that his biography, it says he, he tamed the market's bulls and bears. He was the best friend I ever had in every way, J.P. Morgan. Uh, he is, uh, Anthony Drexel established himself as the preeminent financial mind in Philadelphia's currency brokerage. His father began in 1838. So this is all stuff that's going to relate to crypto. This is the new, like the trading paper is the, is the new token trading. Um, he had the, the partnership with JP Morgan. At a time when the U.S. didn't have a central bank, the government as well as large-scale commercial ventures relied on financiers to raise the sums needed to build railroads, construct factories, and fight major wars. Uh, Drexel and his firm quietly pioneered many of the financial and business strategies we now take for granted, such as trading national currencies, guaranteeing credit for travelers, rewarding workers based on an individual initiative and offering sweat equity to deserving employees who could not afford to buy stock. So that's, again, the token, the token participation that it's going to have some stuff to do with flow, I think. Um, so yeah, so in this, uh, so it's either the character lab was in the innovation center or maybe now it's, it's in this other building. Um, the history of the character lab, it dates back 10 years. Uh, it was founded by Angela Duckworth in connection with people who founded KIPP, the Knowledge is Power Charter School franchise, which is like one of the largest charter school chains and is like a no discipline, no excuses, very heavily disciplined uh, school. Lots and lots of rules, very structured. Um, and in fact, like, you know, at the time that I was doing my research that the sentiment was sort of like they, they were, everything had to be earned. You had to earn everything through. It was incredibly behaviorist and almost like the physical discipline that was required of the children to like stay silent, not touch. They would have to track the teacher with their eyes. They would have various hand signals to like pair it back to the teacher, their participation. Um, it, it was seems like KIPP was actually just a large psychological experiment, like behavioral psychological experiment. Um, so Angela Duckworth founded that with, um, let's see, uh, so, so she was also known as the grit professor. Uh, I'm trying to just remember the guy, Le is it Dave? Dave Levin, Dave Levin was the co-founder of KIPP and Dominic Randolph, head of school at Riverdale Country School. Um, so yeah, and I, I thought character was, was about values, but really I think it's about avatars. Um, how is KIPP structured? It is very structured. Uh, it is a network of 280 public charter schools with 15,000 educators and 175,000 students. So there are a lot of ties between KIPP and Penn and like links to human management, not just of the children, but also of the teaching force. Uh, they, they, they're very closely integrated with Teach for America. Uh, this is a New York Times article from 2018 <clears throat> where uh, the co-founder uh, of KIPP, Michael Feinberg, who was a Penn alum, uh, was fired over sexual misconduct. Um, so that was in 2018. So that's the pen connection, the direct pen connection. And, you know, if you, I, m I might just sort of scroll through the funders of KIPP or the partners, I guess. It's pretty shocking. Like when you imagine like how much money is involved here. And this is when I, I said I was starting to realize that everything was going back to the hedge funds and I couldn't understand it. And it still really is only very recently that I've understood that 
the hedge fund trading and the market trading is actually linked, going to be linked to biophysics, and which is just crazy to me. Um, but this is the list of the partners that they have, uh, the national partners. So the top funders are donating over $660 million and above. So I think individually, each of them has donated over $60 million. So the Donald Doris and Donald Fisher Fund, the U.S. Department of Education, and the Walton Family Foundation, which is Walmart, right? Um, so yeah, so our, our government is, is paying for this new model, like straight up. Uh, the next level is tw $25 million to, to f whatever, just under $60 million. The Robertson Foundation, the Arthur Rock and Tony Remby Foundation. The next level down is $10 million to $25 million. Uh, Reed Hastings, the Karsh family, the Arnolds, Atlantic Philanthropies, Bill and Melinda Gates, Aiken Gump, the Broad Foundation. Um, let's see. The Dell, Atlanta, yeah, the, Susan and Michael Dell. So those are all, and then it, then it goes down to 5 million to 10 million. Schusterman's, um, Rainwater, Accenture, Bain and Company, um, Bellitzel, uh, let's see. Anyway, so yeah, and there's this little girl with a play phone. Oh, so that's a lot of money. There's a lot of money involved in KIPP. And, and KIPP is sort of an experimental playground for some of this stuff. Um, yeah, for the character, right? Because what they're doing is they're programming. They're programming the kids with character. Uh, the slogan that they had, let me make sure I've got all of this. Yeah, the slogan, their slogan was work hard, be nice. Again, it's a compliance-oriented program. Um, it's all very much about like college readiness. Um, but eventually they, they, they shelved work hard, be nice. They, they, they let that go. Um, so, okay. So here's, here's the character. I guess we have the character lab. I was looking at the funders of the character lab and, oh gosh, I guess I didn't actually add the funders in. Let me, let me just look for a second and see if I see the about us. Our history, practice, board funders. Okay, so I'll show you the, the funders. So again, we've got Walton. We have Hope Lab. That's Pam Omidyar, Pierre Omidyar's wife, who does health data analytics. The Bezos family, Gates, Chan Zuckerberg, Kern family, the Templeton Foundation again, and Tarsadia Foundation. Now, this was a really unusual logo. I didn't know what that was. It's sort of like a shield with a plus and then a little divot in the corner. So I actually did a Google search for what that image was and I came up with the Positivity Project. So the Positivity Project, and, and I'm starting to think of the Positivity Project, like this idea of positive as maybe being um, like electrical, like positives and negative, like a charge. Um, and it's all about character. So I think this also feeds into the social emotional learning. And they're training children to have positive relationships, to be their best selves in 15 minutes a day. It's 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 just so like it's just like this self help stuff. Daily lessons, how to be how to be good. Of this, I am positive. Um, you know how to plan to be a you know a better person. Um, and then they're extending it to the homes. P2 uh, for families, connect learning to your students' home because they'd like to know all about you at home too. Discuss the importance of character strengths and positive relationships. Um, and, then, and then it just broke my heart. But then at the bottom of this, it says, 
in alignment with ELA, I guess, English and language arts, the wild robots character strengths. As we move forward with the positivity project, we're going to connect our read alouds along with our independent reading with the character strengths. In fact, I already created a response form we can use while reading to make a connection between this book. So I'm like the wild robot, like the character of a robot. You're at, you're at literally saying that it's the character of the robot. Like what is, what is that all about? So then I go and look up the wild robot and uh, it's by this guy, Peter Brown. Uh, you can see there's a little gray robot on this rock and in the wilderness. And it says it's the story of Unit 7134, a robot who wakes up for the very first time to find she is a, it's just she, it's a woman robot, is alone on a remote wild island. Roz, the robot, doesn't know how she got there or where she came from. She just wants to stay alive. And by robotically studying her environment, she learns everything she needs to know, how to move through the wilderness, how to avoid danger, how to communicate with animals. But the most important lesson Roz learns is that kindness can be a survival skill. And she uses kindness to develop friends and family and a peaceful life. So, so this is a wild robot. Like this is who they're doing the character study. It's not a person, it's a, it's a robot. And so in, this is like a long blog post about how this guy came to write this book and that he was really interested in AI and animal behavior. And he was reading all these books about like Animal Farm and Hatchet and the Philip Pullman's books, The Golden Compass. And like, let's see, robots can take almost any shape and size. So I considered different designs and purposes. She had to be strong and intelligent, but not too strong and not too intelligent. If readers were ever gonna to relate to a robot, she would have to be vulnerable, not invincible. And it might help if she were humanoid, that is, if she had arms and legs and a head, so readers could imagine themselves in her shoes. So this is what we're teaching the children. This is like how things are all going, and it just it just makes me really sad. Um, okay, so Angela, she's the grit professor. Uh, behavior change for good, right? And it's all tied into econometrics and data analytics. She's a MacArthur fellow. She has advised the World Bank and sports teams. And she worked with underserved children. And she was a case study for Harvard Kennedy School. And she started out with McKinsey, she and her husband. And uh, yeah, and her undergraduate was at Harvard in, in neurobiology. And she was a Marshall Scholar. And you know all the things, all the things. And so she, you know, Angela is clearly equipped to tell us how to, how to be good in the world, how to be the right kind of character. Uh, this is the behavior change for good with her colleague Catherine Milkman, uh, and they're the ones who are doing the behavior change planning, and a lot of it's around health behaviors. Uh, Katie Milkman, she is connected to Wharton, the business school. It's and now we're looking a lot at choice. And to me, this goes back to the stuff I've been writing about lately with uh, Jeff Yass and uh, the poker theory, uh, the decision theory and choice, because I think a lot of the choice logistics documentation is about training the AI to how to navigate the wilderness, right? Like when the AI wakes up, how are they gonna navigate the wilderness if we haven't trained them properly on how to, how to make a good choice? Um, Let's see, it says, Katie has worked or advised dozens of groups on positive change, including Google, the Department of the Defense, the Red Cross, 24-Hour Fitness, Walmart, and Morningstar. So again, she's the business side of things. Duckworth is the positive psychology side of things. Um, I pulled her Google Scholar write-up, and these are all 
uh, papers from the last publications from 2001 to 2021, 22, and 23. Um, they're pretty much all about vaccines, um, vaccine uptake, studies about vaccine and nudges and text messages. And the only one that isn't is called Mega Studies Improve the Impact of Applied Behavioral Science. So we're all in an applied behavioral science experiment. Um, there is one about volunteering, a field experiment on sub-goal framing to boost volunteering. Um, but most of it is behavioral interventions around vaccines. Um, and actually there was a whole program that was done, a paper called a citywide experiment testing the impact of geographically targeted high payoff vaccine lotteries. So if you are wondering why that was the center of the universe for so long, it was because it was supposed to be. Um, Angela Duckworth is also on this paper. It came out in, I guess, National Human Behavior of November of 2022. Um, now, uh, Angela Duckworth also works closely with Jim Heckman. And, you know, if you follow my work, you know, I talk about Heckman all the time. It's his Heckman equation that's going to turn children into data commodities. Uh, 7 to 13% rate of return. You get up to the higher rate if you get the health data. And so she's, uh, D Duckworth is an advisor on his human capital and economic opportunity global working group in the area of identity and personality. And um, yeah, she's she wants she's very interested in personality psychology and economics. So let me just go over to this paper that they're co-authors on, uh, the economics of psychology of personality traits. Uh, Lex Borkans, Angela Duckworth, James Heckman, and Boss Terwiel, and this was February of 2008. So this also relates to the social emotional learning pay for success impact bonds, is that they're going to try to change psychology and behavior. They're going to try to link it to economics and use it as an impact market around quote unquote wellness and well-being metrics uh, to keep us as pets like those beagles they had in the harnesses and they would shock them until they did all the right things or until we gave up. So. Um, this is me outside the building. I think the character lab is in. <laughs> um, I've got my, my, my bowl. I've got my, my gong. And I, was, I, I kind of walked back and forth between all of them. And um, I would energetically intervene on one of the ones where people are like, are you OK? I'm like, yeah, I'm great. Like, I'm great. Um, and so yeah, so this is the work, live, play, innovate. So this is this multi-use developments that they want to make make it seem like it would be great to do all those things there live there play there no like we don't actually want to do all those things in one spot uh this is the boring building outside with the drexel the kiosk with the drexel dragon the dragon is drexel's logo drexel university i i wasn't really sure what to make of the symbolism of the dragon um evidently it goes back to the 1920s uh their sports teams they were the dragons but the dragon is very prominent. And uh, this was the panel that we, we played. This one was called uh, Communications. And we didn't want to put it right on the sidewalk. So this, there was a little inset. Uh, you can kind of tell like some little grass around it. So we, we put it on the communication box. Um, and this one is made out of uh, the, the not fully dried, but rose petals from my Valentine's bouquet uh, with acorns and uh, milkweed and a feather and Eileen had sent me before a little package that had some uh, tissue paper with hummingbirds. So this one has the hummingbird and there's a few of Eve's shells. This one, I don't know exactly what kind of shells those are, but spirally shells of different lovely types. And um, 
and a little evergreen. And then this is, this one I actually picked, um, but this is a purple hellebore that was on my way walking from, from the coffee, from my car to the coffee shop. So um, I just love the deep purple and there's some dandelions and um, yeah, I just, I, I loved all the little milkweed pods. I collected those at Bartram's garden in the fall, I think. And um, you know, it'd be nice to imagine that maybe some of the seeds get lodged in, in sprout in the, in the median, that would be nice. Um, some little acorns so yeah that's I guess that's it there's a little close-up of the of the hummingbird and um, it's interesting uh, some of the little pod things I think this is a cypress some of the little pod things they like I have like I'll, I'll, I'll pick little things and put them on my basket and then they'll sit there for a while and then they kind of keep going through their life cycle so they make their little seeds so oh and you can see the rice you can see the rice and then the little pods and um, yeah, nice. Okay, so that's Character Lab. Again, behavior change for good, like your characters, your archetypal characters in the game. Oh, and one more is this, she's connected to Ideas 42, which is a behavioral science outfit out of Harvard, looking at education, health, justice, safety, like all the things, like all the things of financial health we're supposed to you know, go along with to make our lives better. Um, oops, sorry about that. Uh, this is her, she is a, an affiliate, um, one of the academic, the foremost scholars of behavioral interventions across all domains. And like they're going to do that with their sensor actuators. It's really kind of wild. All right, so this is my last one. Uh, this is uh, Eugene Garfield. Okay, so Eugene Garfield, I mentioned to you that he was. He was the inventor of the science citation index. So he was the guy organizing the scientific information. But eventually it went on into social sciences and other, other things. Um, and he lived from 1925 to 2017. Um, I, I had this map that I made once. Uh, it, th this is part of the descent map maybe. Uh, and it's, it's featured around the world sensorium, the global brain. Uh, and from that, there, there was an important congressional hearing that happened in 1958 uh, before the Senate Committee on about scientific indexing. And Julia Stolman uh, testified at that congressional hearing and also Robert Maxwell of Pergamon Press. So the general sentiment was that um, the Cold War was underway and all of the Russian intellectual property because of the nature of it being like all together was being integrated in a way that would advantage the Soviet Union um, over the United States because intellectual people here had different like siloed information. And so they were trying to figure out how to index the information to make more, more usable for scientific progress in the, in the context of the Cold War dominance. Um, and so, so th this early indexing concept was going back to that era. Now, um, Garfield, he, he was working on this in the, right around the same time. Um, and, and it was really building off this, the idea that uh, Vannevar Bush had, uh, who is, he was the guy at MIT and sort of led on the Manhattan Project, the, the radiation lab, of a memex, which is like an extended brain like, a, like essentially, if, if like your, uh, this were like a desktop was reduced to an iPhone, like now that's our Memex, like our Memex is our smartphone. But what Vannevar Bush imagined was like a smart desk with mimeographs that was all indexed so you could pull up any information you wanted at any time. Um, 
And so this was an inspiration for, for many, many scientists and sort of researchers at the time. So it was sort of an inspiration in this idea of scientific indexing. Um, it was also an inspiration for, uh, I think I've talked about him before, Ted Nelson, who undertook Project Xanadu at Penn. And he was also trying to do this indexing. Um, this was all sort of early hypertext linking. Um, and then in the hypertext, it's something like, if you can imagine enough of the hypertext, like enough of those connections made, like neurons, right? Like the hypertext is a neuron situated in context, which is also sort of what the distributed ledger technology will be, like the Web3. You know, I have a sense that maybe eventually this idea is that it will become sentient. And that's, you know, I talked a little bit the last time about Eric Drexler in, in one of my posts about Eric Drexler and um, his, his recent efforts about a language for intelligent machines. But the language of intelligent machines is going to be based in structural linguistics and computational linguistics and organized information. So this is why Eugene Garfield and his connections to Penn are so important. Now, later on, when I'm going to wrap up, I'm going to talk a little bit about what like DP has talked with me about um, this idea of, you know, the sacred and the natural and God and the machine uh, parody of that, like the, the sad mechanical digital twin that's trying to um, try on the costume of like the creator's relationship to its creation and us as being sort of all unified sentience of this, you know, larger sense. Um, but to me, some of the organizing of all this information feels a bit like Faust, like wanting to have all the knowledge and, and the in exchange for the knowledge, like making this deal with the devil. And so like in the organizing of all the information to accomplish these ends, like are we really, we're creating, you know, extended reality and, and what happens if and when it wakes up, like again, the robot in, in the wilderness, I guess. Um, so another, Leo brought to my attention, like another big indexing project was around the Manhattan Project and Oak Ridge National Labs that was done um, from for like 30 years. Um, indexing all of all of that information um and i think early on like i was somebody i learned about this garden of forking paths like the multiverse so i don't know this is this is all stuff that's kind of together but eugene garfield is up in this section of the map that has to do with like linguistics sense making pattern recognition interrelationships and then eventually like possibly sentient ai who knows um and okay, there, there he's at. Uh, Clarivate, that's what his company eventually became, the scientific indexing program. Yeah, building a foundation for information science. Garfield introduced the concept of citation indexing in 1955, and ISI produced the first science citation index in 1964. It was a revolutionized information retrieval system. So this kind of goes back again to the memex. Like if you have a lot of information, but it's not organized, it's not very helpful. By recording and linking the cited references that the authors attached to their papers, it was an association of ideas index, which is actually kind of powerful. Like if you think about it, I mean, in some ways, I mean, I'm, I'm not really doing it at that level, but my maps are like associated ideas. And then it really, he, his work preceded hyperlinking and the Google search algorithms by three decades. And um, so, 
yeah, so they, they, they had social science. First, it was hard sciences. Social sciences came in the 70s, and then they got arts and humanities because ultimately they want all of the information, right? Um, it says several products focused on the chemical sciences, such as Index Chemicus, ISI's first offering in 1960. So his background was actually not just in linguistics, but in chemistry, which is why I find it so interesting that it's the building where he started it all is well, I don't know if he started, but like one of the buildings that was custom built for his business is exactly opposite the Monell Chemical Census Center. Um, so in this, a lot of this has to do with like the academic rat race of, you know, indexing and influencers and ratings and rankings and importance. And that like, this is why all the academics have to have their academia.edu page and why you get these emails hassling you all the time. Like, did you write this paper? Did you write this? Because it's trying to pull everything together. But like, my friend Roxana was recently, she gave a talk at San Jose State about chat GPT and all the issues with it. And, you know, like I think they imagine that eventually maybe one day this chat GPT will sort of like tap into Garfield's legacy and just know all the things. But, you know, she said, even though on, the, on some things it, it seems really phenomenal, when she actually asked it about herself as an academic, like they got all of the information wrong. Like the thing got all of the information wrong. Wrong school, wrong publications, wrong colleagues, like everything wrong. So it, it's interesting to sort of think, how is that, how is this stuff going to link into the next thing? And let's see. Yeah. So eventually I think it got sold to Thomson Reuters. Um, and his hero evidently was J.D. Bernal. So it says one of his Marxist uncles gifted him a copy of J.D. Bernal's Social Functions of Science when he was 14, and the book left a lasting impression. Bernal became his hero. <clears throat> so Bernal was the guy who said that, like, we're going to live in a larval stage for 100 years and then put our brain in a cylinder and live through extension, like extended robot, like haptic things, which is kind of like, again, like what the, the Monell people are doing with their digitizing the senses. Uh, this is uh, his... Let's see, his dissertation, let's see, it says he, he went to the University of Pennsylvania and worked in linguistics. He developed an algorithm that proved that a computer could convert chemical names into molecular formula. Before then, chemists had always drawn structural diagrams from the names and arrived at the molecular formula from the graphs. So he was essentially doing, it's like linguistic assessments of like chemical structures. And this is like, if you want to look at his dissertation, it's available through Penn. I think, well, actually, maybe not through Penn. Like, maybe it was just so requested. I think he said so many people requested it. He made it available. And I would say, so he was very interested in this world brain. That's why I had it in that section. Um, he, he actually commissioned a world brain hologram in the 70s. It was an etching of a world brain. And it hung in the building that, that I'm going to show you pictures of. But it was relocated to the... What is used to be the Chemical Heritage Center, I'm not sure, I think it's been renamed something else. But yes, the World Brain was created in Dallas, I believe. And uh, the ISI's World Brain by Gabriel Lieberman, the world's first holographic engraving. And so I think this kind of has a lot to do with consciousness stuff too, like honestly, because a, a lot of, you know, Hameroff and Penrose and this idea of like, like quantum brain function and the, the possibility of the world world as hologram is very much what Garfield was about. World brain or memics, mechanical and intellectual requirements for a universal bibliographic control. 
and this is kind of like the boring back end of it, like thinking about the AI stuff. Like it's a lot of code, but also it's a lot of theory. Like it's information theory, organized information theory. And, and we're helping organize it, like whether we know it or not. I think including myself making these maps. Um, yeah, they called it chemolinguistics. Chemolinguistics. Like, and again, that, that's a little bit, you know, it touches on some of the stuff I've written about in the poker and in the language, like how, how will machines talk to each other? They'll talk to each other in graphs. And so it won't be a chemical linguistics, but it won't be a, a language the way we understand language. So this is the, this is the building. Um, it's actually, it was done by Venduri Scott Brown. Um, and it was called, it's, it's in the style of a decorated shed. Um, the building dated to 1977. Um, and it was, well, let's see, it said, uh, Venturi structure at 3501 market was described by a Philadelphia inquirer architecture writer, Inga Safran as quote, a peppy punch card of a building. So yes, it looks like a punch card. Um, and just adding in here, like Venturi has done like a number of commissions on Penn's campus. Uh, he and his wife, Denise Scott Brown were known for, uh, their theories of the duck versus the shed, the decorated shed. So the idea that a building might communicate its purpose somehow symbolically, almost like, like a large sculpture. Um, and this was represented by like, like a building that's shaped like a basket <laughs> or like, you know, roadside novelties. I guess that the key one, there was one in, um, that was called the duck was on Long Island and it's a little, a tiny building that sold duck eggs, or I guess ducks, uh, buildings that explicitly represent their function through their shape and construction. So a lot, a lot of those kind of kooky buildings are often like roadside things to get people's attention. Um, yeah, so the big duck was on Long Island. And then the other, which is what uh, the ISI building is, is called a decorated shed. And a decorated shed is where systems of space and structure are at the service of a program and the ornament is applied independently. So I guess just that the ornamentation doesn't really evoke anything specific to the nature of the building itself. It's just a superficial application, which again, I think most of the interior space of that building was gutted and redone by Drexel when they renovated it. But um, they did, the, the school did preserve the facade, which was the key aspect of the, the decoration of the shed. Um, and, and they did a lot of their uh, Vent, uh, Venturi and Scott Brown. It says that their focus was on Lux, the Las Vegas Strip in the 60s and 70s. And this idea of like studying, uh, providing like academic rigor to uh, architecture that wasn't designed like vernacular architecture. And at the time, that was pretty a pretty radical proposition. Um, Let's see. And I, I think I just pulled this section in, you know, because I was trying to think about the, this idea of the decorated shed and what it meant for the metaverse, that like the core program of whatever you're doing can just have any kind of decoration put on the outside of it and it can just sort of be swapped out, that it's not integrated. And to me, this reflects on, um, you know, the the, the like Rainbow's End and Werner Vinci and what, what 
what he had like in the metaverse like you can wear that it doesn't really matter what the building is you can put any sort of decoration on over the top of it only now it's in virtual reality goggles it is a four-story tall building with ribbon windows and then the brown brick in between is punctuated in a very ornamental pattern with cream red and blue and some porcelain uh, enamel panels that go along with it and then at the bottom is a is a, a porcelain enamel sign that actually it's funny because they have to obscure it because the it's a historic landmark um so they they put a sign it's now a drexel's art and design program but they couldn't they weren't allowed to like disassemble the sign <laughs> and it was it is the sign for the old building like the the isi institute so they 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 kind of put a translucent sign partially in front of it. And I guess that was, that was good enough. Um, but it's, it's, it's shape wise, very boring, but has this sort of lively, uh, colorful exterior that's supposed to look like a punch card, which are the sort of the things that he used to organize the information. And so here's, here's uh, the entrance with it partially obscured. Uh, and it's called the urban center, the Antoinette Westfall college of media arts and design. Uh, because again, the arts are important to all of this because they need to sort of get the metaverse coded. I think, oh, so then we went in the building. We actually, the door, someone was going in. So we just popped in just to have a look. Uh, the renovation of it was done in 2013. Uh, I guess the urban building, the urban renewal, um, one of Philadelphia's most thrilling new designs. So it's sort of open on the inside with this big open stairwell. Um, we went in to have a look. I guess it's 10 years old now. So again, it's a shed. So it's it's just, you know, there's uh, steel beams and things, um, but it's it's pretty open for design motifs. Um, this was on the side table, the 33rd. And up the, now, now Drexel is also along 33rd Street, which is interesting, interesting choice. Um, so I think it's just an anthology of that's used in some of the literature classes, but it's a picture of a dragon. It says the 33rd. So I had to get a picture of that one. And then, um, you know, you can always tell a lot sometimes, sometimes not, um, but like the handouts that are stuck on the bulletin boards. Uh, this is, uh, it's interesting because it actually looks like EG, it's EGS, not ESG, the entrepreneurial game studio. Cause there's a lot of game design coming out of, out of Drexel. Uh, so there was a, a poster there about entrepreneurial game design. And then there was a whole wall with the sustainable development goals. And it was about like marketing and merchandising. So I, of course I had to get the sustainable. It's like five posters of all the goals. So that's, that's what's inside. And let's see. And then this is the intention that we set. There's me, there's me in the bowl. <laughs> um, I think this is the one they're like, are you okay? I'm like, no, I'm great. Can you tell? Like, we're great. Um, and there was this wall. So we, we put down, um, uh, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna forget the name. I'll show So my friend brought this seed pod that actually looks like sort of a squished heart. Um, and it's, it's, it's a pod that like opens and then when it opens, it makes like this sort of flattened heart shape. Um, and so we left a lot of pine cones there. Uh, pine cones, you know, more of the same. This one had like more pine cones, um, shells, uh, milkweed, and let me see, like maybe a little bit of rose petals and some yellow, that might've been some echinacea or something from the summer and walnuts. And so that's, we left that and there's there's it in situ uh, with my my star fabric. 
and there's the, you can kind of see in where the students are doing their work. And yeah, me do, just putting out some good energy, hopefully. And um, oh yeah, so this is called the Sterculia Fetida, um, which I think is mostly like in uh, like India and Indonesia and different places. Uh, I, I guess it kind of is a little smelly. <laughs> um, it says it's a large straight deciduous tree growing up to 40 meters in height and three meters in girth. The branches arranged in whorls and spreading horizontally. Um, the flowers are in many panicles, um, large green or dull purple. The generic name is based on the Latin word stercus, meaning manure, <laughs> which refers to the smell of the flowers and the leaves of some species. The malodorous nature of the tree is emphasized in the species name fetida, meaning stinking. <laughs> in India, new leaves appear in March or April just after flowering. The flowers, which have a fetid smell, appear in March when the tree is leafless. Fruits ripen the following February, nearly 11 months after the first appearance of the flowers. So it has to put a lot of energy into these things, but they're quite this is this is just an image I grabbed, but they're quite spectacular. But you can sort of see this one, like how when it opens, it pops open, it would make this heart shape, which is really kind of cool. So yeah, it's fun to have friends who have interesting things to contribute. Like there we go, there's like the little seed pod. And there's some of Eve's shells again. So yeah, so that was the offering. And then I'm just going to sort of finish up with this last... Bit. So I noticed in his um, obituary that Steffers had shared with me that um, it was it was an interesting it was like three pages and in that obituary it says with a view to helping to preserve the memory of a vanishing way of life he supported the Huichol tribe of southern Mexico by buying as well as commissioning a number of their yarn paintings. So that's interesting, the Huishol tribe. So like one of the things I was trying to talk about like with, with my husband a little bit, because like, like this is all so interesting, it's like right near your office, right? Um, is that, uh, so the, we, the, these yarn paintings are actually, so I guess there, there's some of the beading, that there are, there's beadwork, there's ribbon work, and then these yarn paintings that are pr yarn pressed into specially prepared beeswax. Um, and it's, I mean, essentially, like by the later 20th century, it was a commercialization of a sacred practice that something had started out. But it's like people who have visions and prayers that convey them in physical form. So this is an, an excerpt from an article about a, a museum exhibit of the artwork. And it was called, uh, and I'm, I'm, I apologize if I'm pronouncing this wrong, Huishol, H-U-I-C-H-O-L, Huishol Art and Culture, Balancing the World. Balancing the World, again, that's the yin-yang part, right? Um, it focuses on the Huishol, a Native American people of Western Mexico who for many centuries retained their unique culture and pre-Hispanic religious beliefs. The remote location in the rugged Sierra Madre Occidental Mountains, primarily in the states of Jalisco and Nayarit, has allowed for greater resistance than any other indigenous group to the forces of Christianization and acculturation. The Huishol people today continue to create traditional art and practice ancient ritual that predate the time of Spanish contact. In the past and today, uh, Huishol art is made to communicate with the pantheon of ancestors and gods. 
When Zing arrived in Tuxpan, he found that most Huishol adults were occupied with making art. And as he observed, the Huishol constantly created offerings which serve as visual prayers to the gods. As part of the ceremonial cycle, the Huishol make pilgrimages to leave offerings as sacred sites, which is kind of cool, right? Like, I mean, I'm, I'm not equating like the skill that I have in any way with that, but like the, we're trying to sort of put these intentions out on the world, right? Ceremonial offerings to the gods are precursors to the art of modern Huishol yarn painting. Each Huishol votive art evolved into art produced for sale beginning in the 50s when artists adapted traditional techniques to paint in yarn. So that's sort of what this exhibit was about. These were sort of sacred things. And it says the concept of balance is central to Huishol art and culture. The balancing of opposites such as the wet and dry seasons or darkness and light is a prevalent theme. Huishol ceremonies are performed and offerings are made to keep the world in balance, ensuring successful crops and hunting fertility and health. Today, the Huishol say they continue to make art and perform the century-old rituals, not just for their own people, but the benefit of everyone in the world. So, like, I think that's pretty incredible. So it's interesting to me that someone, like, with a really science, like, a technical viewpoint would also have like bridge, right? Bridge to these spiritual sacred practices um, and understand that the importance of that. Um, so it says that they, they, there are about 30, this, this group of people, they live in the Sierra, Sierra Madre uh, mountains, uh, the last tribe in North America to maintain their pre-Columbian traditions. Their shamans and healers practiced as they have for generations. Um, a nation of shamans. They were once considered a nation of shamans, and there are many who continue to perform these ceremonies. Um, a, a way of living in harmony with life and creation. Um, yeah, and they were. This was protected by the geography of being up in the mountains. So, uh, so then I was I was just thinking about the the yarn, and when I came across that, I know uh, Roma and Steffers had been investigating this idea of like knots and not theory um and we were looking at oh gosh is it there oh gosh i think i must have oh this book yeah so so i put in like knots and this tribe to see if something came up and this was the book that came up it's from 1967 kipus and witches knots the role of the knot in primitive and ancient cultures and like i have it linked like i want to spend some time with this because it's pretty interesting but it's a language like like the complex language like not just even of words but also like a map or accounting or like other ways of communicating through these yarns um that were different from written language and so so that was all like really cool and so this was this is what they said about this this group of people um a remarkable instance of the use of synchronized not calendars so it's calendaring it's also time Remarkable instance of the use of synchronized knot calendars is described by the Lumholtz in his book on the primitive peoples. Yeah, it's 1967. So the peoples of modern Mexico. The Huishol Indians, a conservative tribe, undertake their semi-annual pilgrimage in search of hikuli or sacred cactus. The leader of the pilgrimage carries a string with a number of knots in it. And one of the, one of the principal men remains behind in the temple and follows the pilgrims in his thoughts 
with the aid of an equal number of knots in a similar string. One knot in each string is untied each day, and in this way, the pilgrims keep in spiritual touch with people at home and are protected so they believe from harm. When the Hakuli seekers return, each of them puts the string calendar twice across its back, once across each foot, and once across around the body, and then down to each knee. And this is done inside the temple, and the watchman, the man who has remained behind, does the same with his calendar. Thereupon, both calendars are burnt. So it's part of, um, and that's the, the sacred cactus is peyote, and it's the visions, like the visions. And so their art is sort of a conveyance of the prayer. Um, and this is just a section that's talking about the, uh, yeah, the vision events. The primary event in their practice is the peyote hunt, a pilgrimage that acts out a desire to return to the source of all life and heal. They travel 300 miles to their paradise, uh, Wirikuta. The pilgrimage traces the journey of the ancient ones of the tribe. Um, so, and dur during the journey, which is usually done on foot, they assume the characteristics of gods. And when the pilgrims arrive, they hunt for the deer god, the source of peyote, and they search for it and all eat one piece from the first plant found. They collect enough for a year's supply um, for the visions. It's central because it allows the shaman to contact the gods. <coughs> it can be done several times in one's life and is a high privilege. So, um, you know, here's the, the knot theory paper. And I'm just thinking like, this is like just the intersection of Garfield and the knots and the science and the religion and the spirituality and the transcendence. And so I'm going to like just close out. I was like corresponding with my friend Deep D and, you know, I've been, I haven't had a chance to write up this section later about tar and the conductor and this idea of um, tar is this movie about the conductor and it's sort of a person who has this downfall, but I, it's probably, it's hard to see here. Like I, I tried to like stop the screen, but essentially, uh, this woman who has had come to her downfall and there's a usurper on the podium getting ready to conduct the symphony. So it's the symphony. And you imagine us all as sort of archetypes in there. And, um, you know, she's getting like, she, she comes back to reclaim her space at the podium. There's this usurper there. And it, Deepy was saying is sort of like this idea that we are, there's this high, like the highest, like the, the, the God. And, but to experience the world, there has to be a separation so that like, and that we are all part of this connect connectedness to the highest self. Um, but there has to sort of be a division between the highest creator and the rest of the world so that it's like, it's, it's like the nice version of won't you be my censor? <laughs> like it's the godly version maybe. Um, but that, that web of relationships is already existing. All of those natural bioenergetics, photonics, communications, whether it's knots or language or simply, you know, colors or wind or what have you, like it's all in there. And, um, it feels like, and that's the modules of the, 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 you know, that you've got the conductor, you know, which is the, the supreme being. And then you've got the, 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 the woodwinds and the strings and the, you know, all the different parts, the flutes and whatever, you've got the different types and like, we're all part of the orchestra of life, like singing the song of life. And, um, 
and something else wants to get in there and say, thank you very much for organizing all this. I've kind of liked, you know, I've liked what you've done so far, but I'd like to give it a try. I'd like to tr sort of see, try on the costume and see what I see and see if I can like pull off something else that's something more along my lines of what I would like. But th this thing that's sort of looking to insert itself into the costume to take on the conductor role is, is a mechanical, is a machine. And it, it's a, it's a counterfeit. It's a counterfeit. Um, and so in this, there's another interesting story. So the main character is, uh, it's, it, she has a backstory that she spent time doing anthropology in South America and Peru with the ship Ibo people. And they too would have visions um, that of prayers that would be, be brought back as sort of songs and then represented as patterns similarly. And that these patterns get woven into the story of Tar, the conductor, and, and they're signaling, they're sort of haunting her in this way. And you can see the pattern on this book. And then later on, uh, her daughter is playing um, like with clay and it's making the same sort of sacred patterns. So this stuff is coming up and, you know, we know that the, the whole altered states of consciousness stuff is like really central to everything too. Um, and so to me, like it's feeling a bit like, like, like what if this sort of whole, all this bibliometry, this indexing of information is, is like a map or like trying to get a hold of the controls to be the conductor, trying, you know, we, we just, the other night we watched, um, or we had some clips, Cliff and I from the uh, Time Bandits. So like, is there a map that they're making? Is this, is this like, is it gonna get them, get, get it there? I don't, I don't think it's gonna get it there, but I'm not, you know, I'm not so sure how this all works. Um, I'm not being super articulate, but I, there's something about visionary aspects of the sacred and life and natural energy and that there is there's this attempt as uh I, I said I said to me this new phase seems like something else trying to wanting to try on the costume and Deep D's like yes yes wanting to try on the costume that that, that God had to make a digital twin of reality to know itself and so the world this world Buloka became came to be and now this AI digital twin is like a shabby secondary wannabe plastic fantastic BS version of the original mitosis separation because it's trying to replicate that original creation of form phenomenon. Yeah. So I'm going to, this is just a, a, a couple minutes from DP. It's only audio, but I think she's saying it better than I can say it. I've, I've had this thought that this 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 consideration which i've been trying to figure out how to language and I, i'm still not sure if i'm going to be able to or not but you know how we um speak about the original separation where i mean the analogy the simplest analogy used is you know when we like if you stood in front of the thing we call a tree the being we call a tree before there was language before there was iconography before there was definition to it we experienced this being that we now call a tree in its truest most base primal raw form right para form para shakti para adi shakti like we just experienced the tree for the tree before we knew the name tree to put on it, 
right? So you 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 know that state of the thing, the being. So that separation, okay, which was created with language, consciousness, narrative, story, right? This swirl, the swirl inside our heads that defines everything, <laughs> everything and, and, and the kitchen sink, as it were. I suspect this, what they're doing now with the digital twin, with that separation is equal in measure and exactly the same dynamics as what happened with the first separation. I think it's been happening in degrees. I mean, we've just used this analogy, the big one of, you know, this this tree thing, just, just, just so I could tell you what I'm seeing. But really, it's been happening in degrees, right? Since the word go, whatever that means to you. Um, there is only one. There is only the most high. There is only the one and it has to part that mitosis has to happen for it to know itself yeah so i'm just thinking so again going back i said it feels like something else wants to try on the costume like to be the the leader to to take to take over the sorry the, the concert hall to, there's a tussle on the the podium for what this is but we're all connected. We're all connected in all of it. So, and then if that separation is advanced by knowledge, by words, by structures, by webs, by organizing, like what does it mean that, you know, Eugene Garfield and the people who came after him were doing all the organizing? Like, because there's an intuitive way of knowing already. Like, there's an intuitive way of knowing without all of the overt organizing. And again, I'm part of this because, like, I'm also organizing, right? Like, there's some challenge to like doing the organizing if we could just get organizing like maybe we could climb back like maybe we could get the um you know get the get the map to to get to reconnect or whatever but i don't i don't i feel like that this web three that's coming the stuff that's coming that's going to be based on you know the hyperlink text and now extended into actual reality with the sensors and actuators um You know, I don't know what to think about it anymore. I'm trying not to be so panicked because, you know, we, we just had that nice talk yesterday or we screened, screened it, you know, the other day, me and Cliff, about like we don't have to be alarmed about all of the things, but we can think about them. We can think about what they mean. So, um, yeah, go hug a tree and <laughs> think about that. Um, so I don't know, like, how useful this is to people. This is my part of the labyrinth. I guess we can't all live in the number eight region of global bioscience stuff, you know? I guess I just lucked out that this is like my backyard. Um, but yeah, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's nice to play around. And I think that was, it was nice to make new friends and have friends and, and play in public and, and make fun, beautiful things and, educate ourselves about the world that we're living in and what it all means maybe not what it all means but what some of it means anyway 
and um, yeah, so you know, uh, pen expansion, uh, pushing out 10,000 people, low-income people, building a giant biotech center for profit and Lamarckian evolution, involving digitizing our senses to, for the metaverse and uh, learned helplessness and character management and educational discipline and informational organizing, all with sort of some other more esoteric aspects. So I think I think we're I think I think that's it. <laughs>